So we are doing something a little different this week. We are starting our show with an interview, and it's a really worthwhile one. We have three amazing filmmakers with us. Um, they are the filmmakers of the Oscar shortlisted animated short, If Anything Happens, I Love You. Uh, we are so happy to welcome the uh, writers and directors of the short, Will McCormick and Michael Gauvier, and the lead producer, Marianne Garger. Um, uh, please, could all of you just kind of announce yourselves with your names so that people can distinguish your voices on the recording? Let's start with, 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 uh, with Will. Hey, I'm Will McCormick, co-director of If Anything Happens, I Love You. Michael? Hi, Hi I'm Michael Govier. I am uh, the other co-director, co-writer on the film. And Marianne. Hey, everybody. I'm Marianne Garger, producer on the movie. And thank you guys so much for having us. Uh, Tim, I'm going to let you take the lead on the questioning because, uh, you, you know, you and I spoke about this incredible animated short and you just had some amazing things to say about it. So I'll, I'll let Tim kind of, uh, kind of lead us off here first. Well, it's a perfectly exquisite film, of course. And I, and I think that, that what I'd like for all of you to comment on is the utter simplicity, uh, of it all. Uh, particularly, in, you know, at, at, a, at a moment in the history of sort of Hollywood animation, anyway, where you know Pixar and everybody is doing heavy duty 3D super. I think I think some, something just got an award for the animated hair or something uh, uh, recently, uh, and, uh, and 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 you guys eschew all of that uh, to tell the story visually uh, and with such simplicity. Talk to to us a little bit about about that um, uh, because I don't think it would have worked better in any other way. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, we talked endlessly about the style and the look and the feel of the film. It was um, paramount to us. Uh, you know, we were going for complete minimalism and sort of parsimonian style in a very 2D lean way. Uh, we wanted the film to look and feel like grief that could feel uh, desolate and barren. And, uh, you know, Michael and Marianne and I sort of had a cardinal rule uh, when it came to design that anything that didn't need to be in frame, we would remove it. And uh, once we committed to that style, it was really exciting. And we kept stripping and stripping and stripping and getting down to the bare essentials, which seemed to uh, work. I thought that, you know, we all thought that we could do uh, more with less. And um, I think it works in the movie in that, um, you're able to hang a lantern on just the emotionality of the moment, uh, which feels uh, specific to that type of grief that is that acute. It, it's sort of, and it also, I think, works in the memory section of the film. Um, I think implicit memory works that way. When you remember the past, you don't remember everything that was in the room per se, but you do remember how you feel. So once we committed to that style of minimalism, in a movie with no dialogue, it was terrifying as storytellers, but it was also really <laughs> exciting. And then ultimately, I think rewarding. It works well for the story. One thing we really did start Everyone, with um, the story uh, dictated the style rather than finding the style to then push the story on where, you know, all kinds of companies have their own style of animation, their own style, and then it will always be that look. And so we actually started with the story and then found our style that supported the story rather than saying, okay, here's the look. And, um, it has to match that. 
So that was something that we really talked a lot about to find our own style. And we were so lucky and blessed to have uh, young Renaud, who is our animation director. Um, she had just graduated from CalArts and she came on board right at the very beginning. And it was, it was all of us gelled with her look, her designs. And it was just this kind of perfect moment of everyone working together. Uh, you, you know, Marianne, talk for a second. I, my understanding was that this was done at your kitchen table for the most part. Is that correct? Well, it was either mine or Will's or Michael's. <laughs> okay. And we called it the the kitchen table production. I mean, when we this was the strength of the script was the vision was so strong directorial and the writing was so strong from will and from michael this was the first time i had done anything outside of a studio system and we had no money we had no talent no artists no equipment um no distribution we had nothing and but one thing that we did have was a lot of passion and we said no matter what we're going to get together around that kitchen table every week and we're going to sort of take problem by problem and we slowly found young rando and you know slowly figured a way of moving the needle forward it was it was very hard but yet very rewarding and i think part of the reason why it was successful creatively was to to the absolute strength of vision of will and michael and we and you know i should we should point out here tim and i are tiptoeing around the plot of the film a little bit because we don't really want to give anything away it's one of those it's one of those animated films. It's, 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 um, you, you, you formulated a story which really doesn't manifest what it's about until it just really hits you with everything. And it, it's, it's incredible how much emotion you pack into that. I, I will say it's, it's, it's a little bit mystical and a little bit spiritual. And there's this kind of abstract journey that it takes you on. And you're wondering for so many minutes, where is this going? And what do these, these characters and these images represent? And is this a dream? Is it reality? And then eventually you come, you show your hand and it's it, the emotional payoff of that moment. And even remembering it is so extraordinary that you, you have this viral TikTok phenomenon where people are showing the before and the after. And it's before here I am, you know, normal me and after people just awash in tears. And, you know, I'm tearing up just remembering it right now. I mean, that's that's an extraordinary thing to pull off in a live action film. But to to maintain the this is what always mystifies people about animation is that you're doing this one frame at a time, one second at a time to maintain that emotional investment as filmmakers so that it pays off in the film. That's an incredible thing. Can you talk about what did you how did you how did you just keep the, the energy and the commitment and the drive throughout this whole thing? It, thank you so much for that astute breakdown um it it the film had a very interesting journey because we wrote the script and we brought it everywhere and 
everyone said no. Everyone says this film is too sad. No one will want to watch it. It's just too much. And so we pitched it to all these different studios and all these places. And everyone said, no, no, no. We, we liked the script. It made us cry, but we will not. We can't do anything with it. We, you know, we, best of luck on your journey. And it was kind of that. And then from there, we just decided we needed to make it. And the surprising thing, like what you were talking about TikTok, is like after we made it, the response has been overwhelming. I mean, all these people want to feel, all these kids are on TikTok and want to feel, and they have these huge emotional responses, and, and they w want to have uh, an outlet, and they want to have these discussions about grief. And so it's been so rewarding to be part of that conversation and also to have it so simple and, you know tell so much story in 12 minutes. Like we just kind of did everything we could. And, and I kind of always feel the film kind of feels like a fog, like a slow fog that slowly rolls in or just this gentle little breeze. And it's all of a sudden it just eventually is all around you. And that's when those big moments hit and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm in it. And I've always felt it just kind of has a slow, like, you know, if you look at the San Francisco Bay, when you see that fog slowly move in over the whole city, I kind of feel like the film has that emotional um, feeling to it. Hmm. Um, I, I, I believe that Marianne mentioned that, that there is no dialogue. Um, so, 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 um, uh, was it conceived without, was there ever dialogue, you know, per se in, in the film or was it conceived as it is? Um, initially there was one line of dialogue or maybe two. And, um, we found that, um, in building the movie, um, we cut it. So, um, you know, as a screenwriter, you're always trying to tell a story you're trying to show and not tell and try trying to tell a story in as few words as possible and going for total economy. And so, um, it was exciting. I mean, uh, to tell a, a, a story visually with no dialogue at all felt like a challenge, but it felt right for the film. Uh, coincidentally, I think that that's one of the reasons why the film also played so well around the world. I mean, as Michael said, we had nobody wanted the movie. They said it was too sad. Um, it was truly the most independent film I've ever worked on, and I've worked on a lot of independent films. But 66 million people around the world showed up on TikTok, and it was surreal to watch people watch a movie in real time. But I think also because the film had no dialogue, it also played well in all of these different countries because it's just the actual um, images that speak. And um, that was unintentional. We didn't think like, oh, my God, this movie is going to play really well in Brazil because it has no dialogue. It was just like a happy accident. Well, because it, 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 it forces it was um, so wild the watcher to, people. To, to, in fact, watch. No, please go on, go on. Oh, no, I, I was sorry, sorry, saying like it was so wild to have all these people uh, write us, email us or text us on social media in all these different languages and saying they saw our film and like you're having to use Google Translate to kind of see how what are they saying? And they're saying wonderful things. But it was like I never would have thought none of us would have thought it's like someone's writing to us in Portuguese. Someone's writing us into Farsi, <laughs> like, you know, all of these languages that are amazing. And they're saying these wonderful things about the film so it was just this amazing thing um you know we were number one on that the netflix top 10 in brazil for like a week which as a short film it's like that just doesn't happen it's like you would never think that this is a thing 
And the film is, we should point out, available on Netflix right now. Uh, anyone in North America can see it. Is it on Netflix globally? Is there anywhere that people mm-hmm. cannot see it on Netflix? That's a great question. I think. No, I believe it's globally. I think the only place it might not be playing is China. Because they had a different, uh, yeah, well. they had a different rules about with Netflix shows there. But past that, it's playing in I mm. think a hundred and thirty, hundred and fifty countries, like everywhere Netflix is globally. That's amazing, mm-hmm. man. Um, so so uh, let's let's get to some of the production particulars of this because you're you're not Pixar, you're not a studio. Um, you don't have the resources of the, of, of you know, uh, endless uh, computers. This thing is hand drawn. You don't have, you know, a post-production department. <laughs> How, uh, talk about, you know, when, I mean, when you tackle something like this as three people, how do you begin and what were the what were the major hurdles that you ran into that you may not have anticipated? Well, well the I power think move. The- oh yeah, Marianne. I was going to say Marianne was the power move. Marianne, I'll set Marianne up right here. <laughs> the biggest move we did was as we were trying to build this, we pitched it everywhere and we couldn't go anywhere. So then Marianne's like, we should just build it. We should just make it and just start building it and then it will work out. And so I'll let Marianne take over from there. Oh, Mike, it's so sweet. Um, Well, we thought like because of um, the subject matter, it would be good to involve youth and youthful talent, youthful artists. And we looked to... um, USC and Will and Michael had a great contact at Cal Arts and we found recent graduates that may be interested in um in storyboarding this project and uh Will and Michael I'll let them talk about how they found young Rano but we just sort of got started on pizza money as we called it we would get together we would you know, uh, have great food <laughs> and great meals around the table. Um, and for editorial, uh, you know, we called in a favor from a, a previous colleague, Peter Edinger, who had just come off a movie and had some downtime and was really impressed with the project and very happy to join. And, um, and, uh, I think Will and Michael have a have a great story about how they found young Ran and and knew she was the right fit. Yeah, we had um, sent her the script and she had read the script and we said, hey, let's all meet up at a coffee shop and, you know, let's talk about this because, you know, the that's where we started. And so then it was just like we uh, she walks in and we meet her and then she says, um, you know, this film reminds me of this film called Father and Daughter. And it has a lot of these emotions and a lot of these big feelings in it. And, and Will and I look at each other because that's our favorite film that we've been modeling as far as tonally after the whole time. And we hadn't discussed this with her at all. And that's the one we had looked at for the minimalism, for the designs, just as jumping off point as far as inspiration. And so she instantly brings up that film. And we are so connected and we go, well, this is it. You get this, you get where we're going and you get what we want to do. And it was just this perfect gelling of uh, us with her. And then from there, it, it, 
went very smooth. Like everyone's on the same page. Everyone really collaborated quite well. And, and everyone was there to like up each other's game. It was just like a really good team dynamic where it's like, man, that's an amazing point guard. That point guard's going to get that forward open. And now that forward is just, you know, we got this. And so it was this perfect team dynamic. When, when, when we say hand, yeah, we were, drawn. we were able to, Oh, I'm sorry. Go on, please. No, 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 please go. I was going to say, when we say hand-drawn today in animation, exactly what does that mean? Um, uh, pencils? Actual pencils? And paper? Or What does that mean exactly today? Hand-drawn today still means what you kind of think. It's done by hand, but we've advanced in the world, and so you have like a giant kind of tablet-like device that's specifically for animation, and you have a pencil, which is, you know, a fancy computer pencil, (laughs) and you're drawing on the actual screen. So every little moment is drawn, and what you can do with it, instead of having to pick up different kind of brushes or different things to paint with, you can redesign your brushes in the computer so every stroke will be a different kind of look depending on what you want it to do. If you want, like ours have those kind of fine point kind of pencil ones or um, Young kind of called it, it's got this kind of scratchy look to it. And she designed all of the brushes that you see in the film. And that's how we got that wonderful look is because she built those brushes and then shared it with the other animators. So everyone has the same tools as they're building it. But, it, you know, it is, you know, hand drawn is the fact that it's 2D. You know, there's what, 24 frames in a second. So there's 24 images every second that are drawn, you know, and that's just the baseline. And now sometimes we drop frames or you add more frames, depending on how you want the animation to look. But that's kind of the base world of it. Yeah, I think they used a program. They even had their own equipment in the very beginning from school and used a a program called TV paint, I think, right, Michael and Will? Yes. Um, what I what what I still find also so striking is what Tim initially talked about the simplicity of it. Was there ever a moment where you felt maybe it's too simple? Maybe we need more of this. Where there was that temptation to say, you know. More is always better in movies. It's, you know, we need, maybe we need more sound. Maybe we need dialogue. Maybe we need to, maybe we needed to to go some CG. Maybe we need to use this this really sophisticated software. Was that temptation ever there where you felt maybe you were just too old school? We had a moment um, early on when we were doing exploratory art for the memory section, kind of the middle of the film where you see the most color. And we did some exploratory art that had a lot of color in it. And that was always intended to have a ton of color, but it was just so much and it was so overwhelming because instead of staying in the story, all you're doing is you're looking at it and go, wow, that background's really vibrant. Wow, their clothes are really vibrant. The, the car that drives up to the Grand Canyon is like way too intense and blue. And so... We then kept stripping that down and go, okay, we need to mute everything so it doesn't pull us out of story. It doesn't pull us out of this scene. And so that was the constant balance we were always having, trying to make sure color didn't overwhelm story or you don't get... The last thing I wanted anyone to do is watch the movie and and drop out of a scene and just go, wow, that background's amazing, but not be in the scene. 
So we always wanted people to be with the scene and in that moment. So, so it, it, it sounds to me like, um, you guys really, really had a, a pretty firm vision from the beginning, because what I often hear from, especially with animators is that, well, you know, it changes as you go along. I mean, especially those who do stop motion will very often change a lot of stuff as they go along. They begin to realize what is and isn't possible. They change ideas. It sounds like you guys had a concept. You stuck with it and you didn't allow the temptations to sort of deviate or to pull you off track. Is that a fair assessment? For sure. Yeah. You know, a lot of times in animation, um, like Michael said earlier, people, people find the story in their art, in the art. And uh, we didn't have that luxury because we didn't have any money. Moreover, the, the, the movie is very heavy. So um, we were, we, we treated the script scrupulously and sensitively. And we spent about a year on a 11 page script, you know, because we wanted to make sure that this film felt authentic to the material and felt authentic to grief. Um, so, you know, I've worked at Pixar for a couple of years and they take five or six years to make a movie and we, we had zero money and zero resources. So, you know, it's, it's really like an independent, like a live action film. Like you get one take, like, you know, what you're putting up on the screen, you have to make sure you need. Yeah. We didn't really take any, you know, any other, I mean, the th ways we explored, we explored in character design and character look, you know, yeah. but as far as story, we didn't explore story as far as different plot lines or other things that are happening. We had the whole world and we had even wrote out like the transitions between the scenes. We wrote out a lot of things and a lot of major components. And then the biggest thing when we started with Young, it's like, okay, what do these people look like? How do they, you know, how do they move, you know, and, and, you know, what, what are the relationships to each other as far as physically and what are they wearing? We will, we will happily take more money though for our next film. If anyone's listening, I don't want to like, Oh, these guys can make a movie for nothing. They'll do it again. Like we will. When it comes to issues of style though, um, because you know, I, 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 we look at a film like this with this very unique style. I think about a film like uh, the triplets of Belleville with that very particular style. And, uh, and yeah. then you have the sort of big, studio styles of animation, Warner Brothers and what they do, Pixar and what they do, etc. The big, the big, big, big films, you know, they live in those worlds. How do we, how can we get films that have unique styles to live in the world of animation, even feature animation, um, uh, where they don't have to adhere to the sort of studio design of, uh, of what animation looks like, generally speaking, these days? I think that's a great question. The uh, to get, I think, more people trying other styles and other designs, it's just you need to. The more we can support independent animation, because once yeah. the big studio defines their style, the style is a brand. It's like it is a thing, and it needs to look like it always looks, so you know what you get. And that's kind of the problem as far as if venturing out. And I, and I think if you want people to venture out and do this, like ours is a great example. Like there were kids on TikTok, which were so funny. They said this statement. They said, um, I think it's animated, but I don't know what it is because they didn't define our style as animation. 
They just saw it as something else. And some even said, I think it's stop motion. I don't know because they don't, their only animation only looks like Disney, Pixar, Warner Brothers. Like if there's one look and that's what animation is. And I love that mm. there's variety and I hope more variety comes out of this. And I, those are the ones I'm drawn to because I want to see a unique voice and a unique perspective in even the designs. Yeah, and I think that design should be bespoke to the story. I mean, you know, like Michael said, there's so much familiarity with the look, and I think people um, relate to it because it's familiar. But, you know, this movie would have not looked good in that 3D bubbly Pixar style. I mean, we, we wanted the film to look and feel uh, like the spirit of the movie. And so we really let story dictate style. And I think rather than people using a default style because everyone's used to it, I think it's an, an exciting time for people to um, put forth new styles into the world and for people to embrace them. And that's really what happened with our film. And it was really exciting to watch. Well, that, that's what heartens me about the TikTok response, too, is that you've, you know, that's that's sort of the audience that matters to the larger companies, which is, you know, young people. And yep. and um, the, 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 you know, they don't really care what people like Tim and I think, you know, we we, we can we <laughs> critics can say what they want. But ultimately, can you get, you know, that that 18 to 24 demo? That's the one they're concerned with. And if they respond to some new animation style, well, then maybe maybe these companies will take more risks. I think that's the good thing. Um, let, let me kind of try to move us toward the end of the interview. And I, I'm reluctant to ask this question because I don't want to get too personal and I don't want to initiate a conversation that would reveal too much because I, I'd like for people to go to Netflix and find this film and experience it as, as fresh as, as Tim and I did. Um, but, uh, let me just ask the question just in case is there, it feels super personal and I don't, without giving away too much the origins of the story and how it came together. Did it come from a personal place? Did it, did it, where did, what can you, without being too specific, what can you say about sort of how the story came together and was, was shaped? I, I think it, it came from a personal place where we all, Will and I and wanted to have conversations about grief. And we had been talking about grief in our own lives, our own personal grief and how we all relate to grief. And and how grief is portrayed, you know, and, and grief is portrayed in these little quiet moments. And we wanted to feature those in the film, these little quiet moments where you remember um, people you lost. And um, that's kind of without getting deeper into the film, that's kind of what it is. We really wanted to, to tackle our own personal grief and kind of put that on the screen and, and, and have a larger discussion. Yeah, I, I've been trying to wrestle with, I've had a lot of loss in my life and I've been trying to wrestle with loss creatively ever since I started trying to make things. I mean, even as a kid, stories about loss really moved me. Like my favorite movie when I was a kid wasn't Gremlins, it was Ordinary People, you know? So um, I've always <laughs> been that. trying to, <laughs> I've always, <laughs> I've always been trying to um, wrestle with things creatively that, um, uh, that are hard for me in life. And I just, uh, you know, working with Michael and Marianne was, and on this film in this independent way, I don't think this movie could have ever been made at a studio. And, um, in fact, I know it couldn't cause everyone said no. So we just decided to make it. So 
you know, it, it was the most rewarding, exciting thing because we, everyone was doing this film for the first time. I mean, it was the first time for the animation director. It was the first time Marianne Garger was producing a 2D short film. It was our, Michael and our directorial debut. And I think with that, there comes a spirit of, um, well, why not? Why can't we do this? Because no one, no one's stopping us. We're unfettered by the designs of a studio and what they think they need to make. And we're just trying to tell a story that's authentic to us. And that was really, really exciting. Yeah, and this film well, was just made a of certain perseverance. Sort of I mean, that's I'm what sorry, made please, this film. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, please. Oh, the film was just made with like perseverance. Like that's what this is. Like we went out to these studios. We even went to Netflix at the very beginning and pitched the script to them, and they said, "We're sorry, it's too sad. We're not interested." And then we went and did it again. We brought it when we had an animatic, thinking maybe they would want to come on board, and they didn't. But then this is perseverance. We went back a third time. And they go, we see the full vision. We love it. We would like to distribute it. But this was after we had had like a full festival run and um, a very independent life. But it's just like the film, every stage has been an independent uh, endurance and perseverance experience. And I was going to say that that makes me giggle so much. Sorry, Marianne, go ahead. You, you, were, you were saying too? Oh, no, sorry. I was just saying that's one thing that is my biggest takeaway from this experience is the lesson of tenacity. If you have conviction in doing something, um, you will find a way. And what was so beautiful is not only, I mean, for us, the definition of success was always completing it. It was never getting on Netflix. It was never like having 66, yeah. 70 million TikTok views and number in the top 10 in 74 countries, like none of that. Um, it was just to make this beautiful statement um, and artistically and to finish it. And, um, and also the other thing that I think we're so proud of is that we did it in a way, our approach was always to uplift voices that otherwise may not have an opportunity. And so, you know, we have an all female animation team. Um, we have, you know, a beautiful, beautiful orchestra, the inner city youth orchestra of Los Angeles, um, who, you know, took four or five days and learned beautiful dreamer. And, uh, you know, even during the pandemic, we recorded one musician at a time and then, you know, sort of uh, layered it in post. And there's just so many lovely people that were involved. And I think we're a family forever, really. It was the best filmmaking experience I've ever had. And, um, and you know, definitely I'll echo what Will and Michael said is, if you want to do something by hook or by crook, you will find a way. Just don't. Just don't stop asking. For every 100 no's, there's a maybe. One maybe. <laughs> and Tim and I talk about this all the time. It, it's that, you know, studios and, and the more cynical parts of the, 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 the movie industry will, will very often sort of sneer at the idea that if you put your passion out there, it'll find an audience that we have to somehow figure out what do people want and you need a, a marketing committee to figure out how to sell it. And you know, you guys are proof that that's not how it works. That if you if you put your heart and soul into something and you never give up, 
people will find you and you'll find them, especially in the in the digital era. And and uh, I'm just so grateful that you guys made this film and people can find it. Um, and it's, it's out there in the world. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, Tim, did you have any any kind of final thoughts? Well, only only pay no attention to the nose. There are a lot of there are a lot of filmmakers who listen to this podcast, and and uh, this is a beautiful film, and uh, they should all go and see it on on Netflix uh, and let it overwhelm them as it did us. But uh, for the filmmakers out there, uh, the lesson to take away from this is to pay no attention to the nose. Absolutely, absolutely, embrace the it. nose. <laughs> Embrace the nose. <laughs> well, I want to thank all of you. Um, it, once again, Will McCormick and Michael Govier, writers and directors of uh, If Anything Happens, I Love You. Marianne Garger, lead producer of If Anything Happens, I Love You. Anyone who wants to see it, it's on Netflix. If anything happens, I love you. Uh, whatever country you're in, uh, you, you should be able to find it. And uh, I, I would urge people to see it. Are there any final thoughts? Uh, I, I'll, I'll give any of anyone just, you know, a few final seconds to, to share any final thoughts that might have uh, come to you. I have one. I would just yes. I would just recommend for um, independent filmmakers. Uh, we had a wonderful partnership with uh, Film Independent which fiscally sponsored us through their 501c3. So any donations made were tax deductible and which was an incentive uh, to support our artistic endeavor. And it's a wonderful organization and they were so good to us and we had such a great experience with them. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank all of you on behalf of uh, Tim and me. This is wonderful. We are uh, we will encourage all of our listeners to, to go to Netflix and find it. it it'll ta it'll take a, a, a very small chunk of time. Don't don't <laughs> you can watch this movie in, in you know it's a short animated film. There's no excuse to not watch it. Tim, final thought. Twelve exquisite minutes. Thank you very much. All right, Tom. we're good. So, a little something different this week. Started off with uh, with an interview, and we are, of course, rooting for for that great little mm -hmm. short film to uh, get an Oscar nomination in uh, less than two weeks. Now we're, yeah. we're two weeks away from the the Oscar nomination. So, really, really hoping they uh, they pull that one off. And uh, if you haven't seen it again, go to Netflix and check it out. It's a it's an absolutely terrific little short film. Um, so, so uh, Tim, postmortem on the on the Golden Globes, which I honestly, I'm at full disclosure. I, I know who won. I watched maybe five minutes of that train wreck as much as I could take. <laughs> I, I, I saw I saw I saw Jason Sudeikis in, in his hoodie, uh, except his award. I saw Don Cheadle laugh and give him the wrap it up uh, motion. And uh, I heard a couple of bad jokes and I and I started to cry. And then I, I just turned on the Laker game because I, <sighs> I, I would much rather watch the Lakers win than watch the Golden Globes destroy careers. So <sighs> that being said, in light of the winners uh, and knowing that we have very strong opinions about the Globes and the HFBA generally, uh, how, do, how do you feel about it? Well, you know, it's, it's funny thing about the uh, about the Golden Globes, about the Hollywood foreign press, uh, you know, controversy uh, coming out just before um, uh, this this Sunday's this past Sunday's show, of course, revealing uh, all sorts of things about the Hollywood foreign press, which I will admit that you know, while there's not much to be, we don't know who's in the Hollywood foreign press, relatively speaking. 
um, uh, you know, the, the, the big controversy. I mean, you know what it was. And and, uh, uh, and and the jokes about that particular thing. I don't know why I'm being coy about it. There are no black people in the Hollywood foreign press. <laughs> why am I being coy? There are no black people in the Hollywood foreign press. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and and um, and and uh, and Sasha Baron Cohen had a little funny about that, and, uh, and a few other people had some funnies about that. The Golden, the Hollywood Foreign Press is such a disreputable organization for so many other reasons. <laughs> the, the fact that they don't have any black people in the press association actually made me so, happy. I, I thought to myself, so, great. <laughs> so, so, so this was this is what I was saying to people. I was saying so, just so you understand the criticism, because over what has been transpired and what it has been, the accusations that have been levied in just the past few weeks. This is where we are. Hey. This group of money launderers and embezzlers don't have diverse enough. Could you go out and find some black embezzlers and, and money launderers? That's effectively what people are saying, and, which I, I, you know, I, I don't know how I don't know, you know, whatever. But but the other part of it is the Hollywood foreign press has never claimed to be a racially diverse group. They represent foreign press. They represent people from other countries who live in Los Angeles and write about movies for foreign publications, which is a really weird group. I mean, if you know the people, you're like, there are people from Eastern Europe. There, there are a couple of people from South America. There are, a, a, you know, a fair number of Asians, people from India, people from Japan. It's like, it's always been this weird ragtag group. Mm -hmm. And, and my question is, okay, are there any black film journalists uh, from other countries living and writing in Los Angeles? And if there are, do they even want to join the HFPA? I don't know. You belong to the Black Film Critics Association. Actually, I don't. That's what I was going to tell you. you. <laughs> that's, that's what I was going to tell you, which okay. is, is, is sort, of, sort of funny. Yeah, and, 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 and there's no particular reason uh, why I don't. But, it, but, but, but in fact, I don't, right? While at, the, while at the same time, I am a member of a film critics organization called Gallica, uh, which is the gay and lesbian. <laughs> Which of course okay. is interesting because I'm 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 neither gay. Some people question whether or not I'm a lesbian, but but I'm, but I'm not gay per se. <laughs> uh, 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 but I am a member of the that they asked me to join and I joined. I said sure. Um, um, uh, the in 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 and actually I've been invited to to, to join the, the to join the Black Film Critics Association. I just I just I just never you know felt particularly so, strong about you it. You certainly know you so you yeah I know lots of people. Who, who, yeah, are, okay. I, I, I mean, we know a lot. I mean, there are a lot of black film critics in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, we, we know a lot of them, but I don't, but they're all American as far as I know. Yeah. Maybe yeah. there's a Canadian in there somewhere, but yeah. I, 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 I don't know any who are from, from say France, none from Africa, from Brazil, from the Caribbean. I, I, I don't know that that, that e they, there are any even in America. So, or even in, in, in Los Angeles. So I'm just wondering based on what the HFPA defines itself as where are they supposed to go and find those members I would, you look I would I would hope and, and and since I don't know any and I'm not going to be too smarty pants about this but I would hope that from nations like Nigeria uh, or Kenya uh, or even South Africa fairly sophisticated quite you know just, yeah. there are journalists from those countries who are black um, um, who, who could very, you know, easily and forthrightly and fairly be members of the, uh, of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, writing about Hollywood cinema, 
uh, you know, for, you know, publications or whatever, um, uh, yeah, in, in, in countries like those, uh, that one would, one would think that that might be possible. Um, I, I, I suspect now, I just don't know of any, I don't, I don't know of any either. One would think about yeah. it possible, but, but again, I have to go back to what I did to the thing that I, that I thought about that at, at first, first of all, it didn't strike me as particularly surprising. I there was a lot of shock and awe about it. I, I didn't have any shock and awe about it. And ultimately, uh, as you said, um, this is just one of the, look, I don't want to, we don't want to get in, involved in any sort of libel or slander or anything like that. But, <laughs> but, 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 but just, you know, if, if you understand that that's, a, that's a $60 million television deal that that very small organization has, uh, that all kinds of, of, uh, stuff is going on to do with swag and oh, yeah. trips and, and, and all kinds of things. If things get an organization, which is not unlike our organization, Los Angeles Film Critics Association, right? Now, um, we don't have a $60 million TV deal. No, we sure don't. And nobody flies us anywhere to do anything. On the other hand, we have a very creditable um, um, uh, you know, film criticism uh, organization, and and what happens when you do what they do at the Hollywood Foreign Press is that you do not have a very credible um, yeah. uh, uh, organization. That organization doesn't have any credibility. So no. to to that extent, I can care less. Look, I've, I've I've never been invited to join. I used to do a lot of work for for international press. Yeah, you know my Germans and my Italians and all that kind of stuff. But I, but I was you know I was never invited to join the Hollywood Foreign Press and, and become a part of any of that. So well, you know. I, I, the and the the other part of it is you know there the people are saying well but their their influence is so outsized that you know we expect to hold them to higher standards well, well my, my is feeling is this but see this is the thing even if if they have any influence it's only because we've given them influence yeah. if you if if everybody just sort of looks at each other and says you know we all kind of agree this is a disreputable organization why would you want to change them when you have over here the Critics' Choice Awards, mm, yeah. which is a better group, a more honest group, a more reputable group, a larger and more diverse group that represents broadcast journalists all over Los Angeles. Mm. They put on a better show. Their award choices are more respectable. There's less politicking and, and there are no accusations of improprieties. Why try to change? Why do the heavy lift? Why yeah. take this other organization? Just transfer, just say, you know what? We're done with the Globes. We're, we're not going to renew your television contract. We're going to go with the Critics' Choice Awards instead. They get there they because they behaved. No, like no, re- no. reward the the kid that behaves. Don't try to take the dis- the misbehaving kid and you know turn them into something they're not. You know, well, what you, I mean? you know there, there lies this sort of really interesting um, question when it comes to the to the Hollywood Foreign Press and the Golden Globes, which is a fairly old organization. It's been around a long time. Um, uh, it was it was built into this sort of popular organization uh, very early on. Yeah. Um, um, not so much in competition uh, with the Academy um, um, because they were always a more popular sort of organization, which is why they have those yeah. categories about, uh, you know, best comedy and and, 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 and and they cover television and, and do all the things that they do. So the question becomes this. If, you, if, you're, if you're a television network uh, and you have goodwill and credibility with your audience and you put on a show, you give a $60 million deal to an organization like the Hollywood Foreign Press, you put on that television show every week that you know everyone makes fun of. Uh, that you, you know is 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 being held by this. Aren't you doing damage, you know, to the goodwill and prestige of your television network? If you what was that ABC? I think it was ABC. Or was it NBC? I think it was NBC. 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 Yeah. Uh, you know, it seems to me, you know, you you kind of now I get it. 
they will come back and say, yeah, that's all fine and dandy, but we sold $250 million worth of ads for that, for, for that broadcast. And we'll sell $250 million worth of ads for that broadcast next year after this quote unquote scandal, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and it'll just sort of like go on like that back and forth. But I don't know. It, it, it seems to me that somebody somewhere ultimately just has to say, you know what? Uh, this is just all skeezy. <laughs> and, yeah. and I just yeah. don't want to be in the skeezy. Uh, if that's yeah. I'm going to go not be in the skeezy anymore. Um, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but there it is. Well, Anyway, as far as the winners go, uh, you know, I was I was really, really happy, even though I still I'm still upset that small acts isn't really considered a feature that it's it's in the TV categories because it was not for the L.A. film critics. But mm. I was very happy to see John Boyega get an award for small acts. Yeah. And I thought uh, that was great, even though I think he's a, a lead actor, not a supporting actor. That's another issue. Mm. But um, on that end and then certainly on the film end, uh, you know, Nomadland, not my favorite movie, but I, you know, I like Chloe Zhao. I, I, well, I she, yeah, her, her winning, her winning made a difference. I thought was really good. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, appreciate the film. Uh, really happy about her winning. Would have appreciated a film like Minari. Um, uh, if, I agree. If, if, if it, you know, but, but then there, again, you know, that little wacky situation there. Very, uh, very, uh, peculiar. And, and, you know, uh, otherwise, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, Andre, uh, Andre Day winning was a bit of a surprise. I didn't see that coming. I don't know if you did. Well, that, well, you know, the thing about that, that Billy Holiday movie is her. Uh, she yeah. is the thing and she gives this, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, astounding performance, uh, the Southern California native out of San Diego. Of course, that big, that big hit song, uh, first time her sort of acting debut, certainly feature film acting debut, um, um up against four heavyweights. I, I mean, she's, just, she's up against think. Viola Davis, Vanessa Kirby, Francis McDormand and Carrie Mulligan. That was amazing. And I wonder if there wasn't a split vote there, maybe might've been because I could, well, you know, the thing of it is, I, I, I suppose in my bones, I kind of, I kind of saw, uh, Viola Davis doing that thing that she does, you know, uh, that yeah. uh, when she when she's in one of those August Wilson adaptations. So I kind of just saw that happening, and then I thought to myself, I, outside shot here, uh, Mulligan, because everybody was really talking about her and that uh, promising young woman. So there may be an outside shot there. Maybe may, maybe Viola's already had her day, yeah. and and the Oscars will be looking at Viola. And so so Andre Day, uh, you know, coming up from the rear and getting that award, you know, kind of yeah, totally surprised me. Doesn't surprise me in terms of her performance. She is that good, uh, yeah. but you know, she's a newcomer, and usually they make those gals wait. Exactly. Uh, Rosamund Pike, I didn't see coming because I didn't even see the film. I care a lot. Didn't even know about it. Where'd that come from? Yeah, well, see, that would be one of those ones that we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that pop See? up, but like to go to, so no, yeah, that was not that was not on anybody's radar, uh, uh, you know, as, as a as as a, back when we were doing our thing for Alaska. Uh, did yeah. you now you 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 covered the Mauritanian on radio? I think mm. you did, didn't you? Didn't you cover did. that on Film I, Week? I, I yeah. Did, yeah. Did, did you see Jodie Foster uh, coming up from the rear? No. No, no. I got to tell you, you know, yeah, this, this, this to me, you know, that's a very, I like the Mauritanian. It's a very safe, uh, traditionally constructed film. She's playing Nancy Hollander, this lawyer, uh, who took on this case for this, uh, Mauritanian, um, uh, 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 prisoner, uh, at Guantanamo. Uh, and it's just all so pat that performance in that role. It's structured, you know, she's doing Nancy, uh, that uh, Nancy Hollander, I think is her name. 
Um, yeah. uh, so she's kind of knocking off that. I mean, if you don't know who Nancy Hollander is, you, you know, what do you care? But I happen to know who she is. And, and I'm like, yeah, she's, she's, she's doing her, <laughs> you know, that's great. Yeah. Uh, and, but all those speeches and, uh, yeah, it's very didactic. Sort of, you know, so no, didn't see that, but it's the exact kind of thing that they do at the Hollywood foreign press, because frankly, yeah. all those old bastards, they love all that old Hollywood stuff now. I, I, and see, the, now the thing about old Hollywood though, we, you know, Mank didn't get anything. Mank got shut out, which, yeah. which I, I kind of predicted because even though it's loved in all these different categories, it was not the most loved in any one category. Mm. Um, Chadwick Boseman and Daniel Kaluuya, I think are front, front runners now for Academy Awards. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anybody's going to challenge either of them. Um, although I was really nuts about Anthony Hopkins and the father, but I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, look, I will concede. I have not even yet watched The Father because I spent, you know, 15 years caregiving my mother and her sister with dementia, and I don't think I'm ready to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't. Yeah. Um, seriously, Aaron Sorkin, sh- screenplay, really? Yeah. yeah. Seriously? Yeah. I, I just you know, you know, because look, I didn't, I didn't even like that. <laughs> that uh, what, what was yeah. the television? Uh, whatever it is, I just, I, I thought of the of the five nominees. It's the least impressive, but I guess you know, Sorkin being Sorkin, it is, it is what it is. Oh, well, anyway, uh, and then Soul got a couple, got music and, and animated. And, of course, Minari for, uh, you know, for, for foreign, which mm. is a, a little insulting to a lot of people. It should have been uh, it's it's an American film and an American story and an mm-hmm. American filmmaker. But mm-hmm. we won't say anyway. So it was certainly an, an interesting evening. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it says a lot about the kinds of films that were released and, and were in the running in the absence of big studio films. But. Um, you know, I, I don't know that uh, it was that much different and the Oscars will be probably somewhat reflective of it. Well, you know, I think about, I think about films like news of the world. Yeah. Big gigantic Paul Greengrass film, Tom Hanks, uh, which in, in any other year, which and, is and, a really good film. It's, it's very good. It's, it's a really excellent good film. film. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and I've been talking about it this year and I get it. You know, there, there are a lot of these little films sort of, sort of bouncing around, but among the big films, you know, that and Mank, um, uh, sort of being out there. Now, you're not, not, not a lot of love for, 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 for Hanks or any of that. I hear some Oscar buzz about news of the world. Uh, but yeah. I don't know. It's um, it's a it's a it's a very it's a very odd year. Most of these movies, by the way, uh, that we've been looking at and talking about uh, for this award season, w- most of these movies were in the can uh, before True. the pandemic. Before the pandemic. Um, um, so we're watching work that was finished, you know, sometime sometime bef- before March of 2020. Anyway, it, it in, in fact, what you're saying is that the pandemic is going to make next year's Oscars probably more interesting than this year's. Oh, yeah. It has yeah. to be. has to yeah. be. It yeah. has to be um, uh, the way I see it. But I don't know, you know, broadly speaking, just in terms of, you know, I, I appreciate, you know, the, these little movies like Minari and, uh, and Nomadland, uh, you know, getting looked at. Um, but, you know, um, I, it's, it's all just a little bit strange. Um, the, the way that this award season has shaped up. Frankly, I think that perhaps we at the Los Angeles Film Critics, I think that maybe we might have gone a little too early. I think so, too. I, feel, I feel like we did, too. I agree. You know, I guess, you know, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a weird year. We we called it the way we called it. Yeah. All right. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to blow through first. I'm going to blow through uh, a lot of the uh, MOD stuff that uh, I've kind of held back, been able to kind of go through over the while, uh, the last couple of months we a lot of movies out there that are not available on streaming 
some which kind of come and go on streaming, but you, you can get them MOD. They don't get heavily publicized, but MOD being manufacturer on demand, uh, everybody's kind of putting it out there. And uh, these are all Blu-rays. So I'm just going to roll through this and just make mention of a lot of these and weigh in on, on a few of them individually. Tim, by all means, weigh in on anything you feel a need to weigh in on. Right, right. Um, I'm going to talk about the uh, the Universal stuff first. There is Prime, which you might remember is an old Meryl Streep, Uma Thurman movie with Brian Greenberg, who never really became much of anything. But a cute little romantic comedy with a, with a fun performance from Meryl Streep. Uh, the lovely Circle of Friends with a young Chris O'Donnell and a new Mini Driver. This is the oh, movie that, yes. that basically made Mini Driver. Uh, this also Universal uh, MOD on Blu-ray. Uh, Chris O'Donnell has not aged. It's the weirdest thing in the world. Um, Andrew Davies uh, wrote this. And Pat O'Connor directed it. And it is a really, really charming uh, movie set in 1950s Ireland. Uh, you know, Minnie Driver hasn't done much lately, but boy, she was just a revelation in that movie. So yeah. adorable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sandra Dee and Bobby Darren, who, of course, were at one point uh, married uh, together with Donald O'Connor in that funny feeling, um, which is which is a really, really sweet film. It's really adorable. It's from 1965. Uh, nicely shot, very, very, you know, Richard Thorpe was kind of a workaday director of the, of the period, uh, directed it from a David Schwartz screenplay. Um, you know, it's very much in the, uh, kind of like Rock Hudson, Doris Day light. Yeah. Uh, and, and the thing is, I can't look at the two of them in this movie without thinking of, um, the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the, the, the terrible quasi musical biopic that Kevin Spacey did where he plays Bobby Darren. Oh yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Under the sea, uh, uh, beyond the sea. Yeah, the, the the one where he was he was older than Darren. <laughs> Darren when Darren died. Yeah, yeah it was just yeah. insane. Yeah, it's crazy, utterly crazy. Uh, very 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 young Jason Lee and David Schwimmer, along with Millie Avatar in Kissing a Fool, another oh. little uh, kind of romantic comedy thing from uh, about ninety eight. And uh, that was, you know, that was, that kind of had a moment. I don't yeah. know what happened. To, I don't know what happened to Jason Lee. He's, he's kind of gone. Um, we talked about, obviously, uh, with the, the recent passing of Cicely Tyson, we talked about the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, nah. which is also out in uh, MOD on Blu-ray. Uh, that won nine Emmy Awards, dude. I'd wow. That. Nine Emmys. One movie won nine Emmys. It really about 72, thing. right? Something like that. Yeah, uh, I believe it was. I don't have the date right in front of me, but it, it's about 72, maybe 73. But yeah, just a, an absolutely tremendous, one of the great television movies uh, of the period. Uh, Kitten with a Whip and Margaret, just and Margaret. <laughs> and this is this is fun. This is from 1964. Uh, very, um, very kind of uh, exploitation and Margaret. Very uh, noir and Margaret. This is not Anne Margaret doing it, dancing with Elvis. This is not Anne Margaret in Carnal Knowledge showing us her acting chops along with uh, with with Jack Nicholson. This is just really gritty 1964 sort of pseudo exploitation noir film uh she's you know a bit of a bit of a this was this is almost like something that you would have expected doris wishman to make you know yeah. one of those one of those tough tough babes on a lamb kind of thing she's you know escapes from a detention detention center and burns the place down stabs a guard i mean it's 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 fun stuff it's Anne margaret just really really chewing it up uh the danish girl fairly uh recent success that is also on mod that this was released in a non-mod version with uh with uh, uh ultraviolet uh as was the zookeeper's wife they are no longer available in those versions but you can still see them in these mod versions 
uh, one of the weirdest Tom Hanks movies of all time, one of the weirdest Julia Roberts movies of all time, Larry Crown. Yeah, which Tom, Tom directed that. Such a weird movie. Uh, you know, Tom Hanks is a really good director, but what an unusual romantic comedy. Uh, they're both kind of past making these kinds of movies, and I don't know that they should have been in this movie together. But, I mean, I enjoy it. It's fun for, to watch, but you just think, why are these two people in this movie? It's it, it's it's a movie. It's 2011. It's, it's the kind of movie that should have been made in like you know both of their young careers. Uh, which yes, yes, for him would have been the 80s, and for her would have been I guess the early 90s or something like that. Oh, uh, crazy! Um, one of my all-time favorite movies of the last quarter century or, or, or plus is uh, In the Name of the Father, Daniel ah. Lewis and Emma Thompson. True Pete story, right? Oh, Pete Postlethwaite, so so good. Uh, Oscar nominated in many categories. Jim Sheridan uh, wrote this with Terry George and then directed it. I haven't gotten a lot from Jim Sheridan lately, but no, boy, he, no, was, he had a run there. That in America, oh, you know, he yeah. had a great run in the nineteen nineties, yeah, early nineties, mid nineties. He's commitments too, right? No, that was Alan Parker. That was Alan Parker. Yeah, yeah, was, but but you know, from the field, he did the started with the field. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, this is just absolutely tremendous. Uh, you know, really, an ex- I mean, the, the whole it basically is the story of Jerry Conlon, who was a uh, a thief in the 1970s who confessed to a an IRA bombing that he did not commit, and everything that transpires. One of the best things Daniel Day Lewis ever did. Yes. Uh Biscuit. You know, a little too polished for my taste, but perfectly, uh, perfectly workable movie from uh, from Gary Ross has has his usual sheen on it. All about the famous mm-hmm. racehorse. Great cast. Uh, a lot of fun stuff on here. You know, an HBO first look featurette feature commentary with Gary Ross and Steven Soderbergh. Uh, reality Bites. Gosh, I love Reality oh, Bites. Wow. Such yeah. a smart movie. Right. I know and Ben. And uh, directed by Ben Stiller, you know, really showing his chops. Uh, Just a a terrific kind of Gen X movie. You know, when Gen X was, you know, when we were, I mean, we're that generation. At least I am. You're, 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 you're still a boomer. Uh, But it's not a cheaty boomer. I mean, like, but but, but, but I'm so so Gen X, it's ridiculous. Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm kind of cheaty, too. Like, if I were born about a month earlier, I would technically be a boomer. (laughs) But, but, you know, I'm uh, I'm a month into into Gen X. Anyway, Reality Buy is very much a Gen X film. The the My Sharona dance moment in that (laughs) with it is just so much fun. It's just so much fun. Janine Garofalo at at, at her most entertaining. A lot of extras on this thing, too. So this is a lot of fun. Uh, and then the last one from the Universal Batch is Dragonheart 3. I know you're thinking, really, they, they made a third one? No, I didn't even know they made a second one. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, but it's it's there, and uh, it's got Ben Kingsley doing the voice of the dragon, and I guess that's worth a little something. Um, and then I uh, wanted to roll through some of these Columbia titles, Columbia and Sony. Oh, because there is one here. In particular, I want to spend a minute on but uh, let's just blow through the others that are that are available just to let people know. Uh, Radio Flyer had a, oh, had a nice man. little run. Uh, Richard Donner and, and his wife, Lawrence Schuler Donner, made this uh, wonderful kind of childhood, sort of in that, you know, uh, stand by me vein. My Girl with the young Macaulay Culkin and the, oh, uh, yeah. the very, very lovely Anna Klumsky. Uh Dan Aykroyd, very, very good in this as well. And Jamie Lee Curtis. The Fantastic Picnic with William Holden and Kim Novak. Absolutely uh, sensational. This has uh, a, a great featurette on Kim Novak's Hollywood uh, experience at the time of Picnic. 
uh, Antonioni's The Passenger. Oh, wow. Uh, which is such a great movie with Jack Nicholson and Maria Schneider. Uh, it is, this is MOD from Sony. You can, uh, you can go on Amazon and just about anywhere else and order it. It's about as close to an actual narrative as Antonioni ever gets. It's um, true. It's kind of like Antonioni's uh, Malik film yeah. in some respects. Ice Castles, just a whole lot of schmaltz here with uh, with uh, Robbie Benson and uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, I forget the, the, name? the actress. Yeah. It's, oh, gosh, what is her name? Um I'm I'm going to I'm going to uh, I'm going to remember Lynn Holly Johnson. That's it. Lynn Holly Johnson. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Lynn Holly Johnson and uh, Robbie Benson. It's really schmaltzy. It's, you know, love on ice skates, whatever. Uh, I love you to death. Actually, kind of fun and underrated uh, dark comedy with Kevin Klein and a whole bunch of other crazy people, including Tracy Ullman. Yeah. Uh, the late uh, River Phoenix is in that one as well. The very misguided Robin Williams vehicle, Man of the Year. This was oh, kind of wow. a train wreck. Yeah. This is sort of the film that started to sink Barry Levinson's career. Uh, Robin Williams is okay in it. Um, but it, it, a it's a hard watch, you know, that one. It's a tough watch. I mean, it, it's probably timely now with what it says about politics and satire and television and yeah. celebrity, but. I don't know. It's a little too late. Uh, the prequel to The Exorcist, Dominion, one of the most misguided Paul Schrader movies of all time. I don't know what he was thinking, but uh, <laughs> if if you're into it, there it is. The, uh, the 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 somewhat controversial now, although it shouldn't be, the bitter tea of General Yen, with uh, Nils Astor and Barbara Stanwyck basically doing yellow face, uh, uh, which we should remember. This is a fr- well, this is like uh, 32, oh, you know, Lord, I mean, about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, come on. Sydney Green Castle Street film. was still was still playing Charlie, Charlie Chan. Yeah, you can't you can't get too too bent out of shape over it. It was it's a film of the time. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, if anything, you look at it. I mean, it's basically uh, it, it it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. Check it out. Um, Enemies of Love Story, I absolutely adore. This is oh, I think, one of the one of the great Paul Mazursky movies of all time, based on the story by Isaac Bashevis Singer. I think this is a beautiful, beautiful film. I think it's a, just so beautifully done. Everybody in this movie just gives it 150%. I think this should have won plenty of Oscars. Ron Silver's never been better. I interviewed um, and It was one of the first interviews I did for Box Office, not for Box Office, for uh, Entertainment Today magazine yeah. uh, feature pieces I did with Paul Mazursky about about that film when I when I first got here. Like, what was that? Like 90, 89, 90, something like that? Oh, it's it's like 90 i want to see 93 92 that late? something okay. like that yeah something might be uh brian song the original television production don't watch anything else james Conn and billy d williams one of the mm-hmm. all-time great tv movies really really a great real life story and just so beautifully rendered Fantastic one of the, one of, one of the first bromances man Sure was. Yeah. Sure was. It might even be the first bromance if, yeah. if we leave out Lawrence of Arabia. Um, American Madness, another Frank Capra production from, gosh, this would have been about 1932 or three as well, I want to say. Um, not hugely remembered uh, today, but really great cast. I mean, Constance Cummings and Walter Houston and it's a really Pat O'Brien. It's a really, really, uh, really, really rock solid film. So complete us to want to check that out um uh, th- this is pronounced 
<laughs> I remember that. P-H- P-H-F-F-F-T. Uh, just a good, silly, you know, 60s comedy with, you know, Jack Lemmon doing his shtick, Judy Holiday doing her shtick, Kim, Le- Kim Novak and Jack Carson. Uh, it, it's just, it's one of those wacky comedies of the period. It just doesn't happen to have Jerry Lewis in it. It has Jack Lemmon, and that's all good. Uh, kind of in the same vein, Jack Lemmon and Romy Schneider in Good Neighbor Sam. It's not a great film. It's silly, and Jack Lemmon is just chewing the scenery. But you know, it's got its moments. It's it's worth checking out. It's a little nice little uh, artifact of the period. And then uh, Kim Novak, Jack Lemmon, and Fred Astaire together in the Notorious Landlady, which is um, not quite as fun. But uh, you know, it's uh, directed by Richard Quine, who had a, had a moment. Um, it's okay. It's okay. This is another little you know little sixties thing. It's a little bit. Uh, it's a little funny. It's a little schmaltzy. Fred Astaire's getting a little long in the tooth, but it, mm. they, they all kind of hold it down. Uh, the Kid Detective with Adam Brody and Sophie Nalise. This is more recent. Um, I, uh, I, you know, watched uh, maybe about a third of this. It didn't really grab me, but it has something of a following, so it's worth mentioning. Um, oh, one more Jack Lemmon movie I forgot to mention. Sorry. Uh, Under the Yum Yum Tree. This oh. one is, yeah, this is a, a lot of people will find the sexual politics of this yeah. dated, yeah. but that's kind of the fun of it. Uh, it's got a lot of featurettes and documentaries on it. This is also uh, directed by David Swift. And, uh, you know, if you're a big Jack Lemmon fan, you'll want to check it out. It's, it's, um, but again, it, it, it feels a little bit dated, but you know, it, it has its moments. Um, and, uh, oh yeah, one more, actually still another Jack Lemmon movie. Sorry, I misfiled them. Jack Lemmon, Catherine Grant, and Mickey Rooney in Operation Madball. Not a very good movie at all. <laughs> uh, this is another Richard Quine effort, which, you know, he made a few, obviously. Uh, the best person in this thing is Dick York, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, Dick York kind one, of, one, 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 one of the Darren's. One of the Darren's, uh, Dick York is, is maybe the best thing in this thing. Speaking of Darren's, James Darren is also in this yeah. by, by coincidence. Dick York is in it with someone named Darren and, and he's not that person. Uh, and then the, uh, the last two movies here, I'm going to make mention of The Last Shift with Richard Jenkins, Ed O'Neill and Shane Paul McGee, which, uh, is kind of, you know, um, sort of bromancy a little bit, I guess. Richard Jenkins has made a career out of playing these sort of detached older, peculiar idiosyncratic guys he's made he's made a few of those and here he's an, an you know an older guy working fast food for the better part of his life and uh he has to train this this young dude uh played by shane paul mcgee to take his place who's you know basically a young black dude replacing this old white guy gets into a little bit of the you know cultural politics and uh it's it's ultimately pretty pretty poignant um not great but you know it was a, it was a good idea and then here's the last one of these that I'm going to mention from the Sony library, Reuben and Ed. Tim, do you remember Reuben and Ed? I do. I do. I do. I do. <laughs> okay. Here's my, here's my Reuben and Ed story. I saw Reuben and Ed in a screening on the Sony lot in the Thalberg building down there in the basement. Oh yeah. Which has, you know, what, like six screening rooms. Uh, I think it was Thalberg, like 23, I, I, I want to say it was it was isn't that funny. I remember it was literally the when you come down into the basement, you got the screening rooms on the left and the screening rooms on the right. This is the one in the second one on the left. I even remember this. That's how traumatic the experience was. I go into that little screening room, probably about 15, 16 people in there. Those screening rooms seat maybe 25. So it's fairly packed. 
why wouldn't you want it to be? It's a you know a comedy <laughs> starring Howard Hessman and Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover. And you're thinking this is like Howard this is like Hesman. this is like ninety ninety one ninety something like that. Yeah, yeah. And you're thinking uh, Howard Hessman and Crispin Glover. How bad can it be? Oh, you have no idea. Over the course of this movie's whatever it is, how many minutes is this? <laughs> this eighty two minutes. Okay, eighty two minutes. We start with about fifteen people in that room, and about sixty minutes. We're down to about eight. <laughs> and about by the time we we roll around to 75 minutes, there are two people left in the room. I am. I am one of them because <laughs> You've stuck it so out. help me. So help me. I will not be driven out of a screening room by a bad movie. I will win. <laughs> I will outlast. And at the end of that movie, the lights go up and the and the lady who was left with me, we looked at each other. And we laughed. And I said, die hard, are you? She said, wasn't going to let it lick me. I said, me neither. Good on you. We were the diehards. Two people out of, you know, uh, more than a dozen, at least 15 who who were there originally. Everyone walked out of this horrendous, dreadful movie. Um, it destroyed the career of Trent Harris, who who, uh, who wrote yeah, the he, he, Yeah, he, his very next movie was a movie called Plan 10. From oh. space, so I think he was sort of copying to the fact <laughs> that, oh. that had, and uh, you know, and but yeah, and I don't know, whatever. Yeah, he had a few actors. Is- Karen Black would show up in there. He made a whole bunch of crap movies. He's still making movies. Oh uh, my god! They're all, but they're so all basically. They're all the, just so you understand how bad Ruben and Ed is, this movie is is fundamentally about nothing. Uh, uh, Howard Hessman is is a salesman who gets. Who, who, you know, he, he, he tracks out Crispin Glover, who's this weird, eccentric, long haired guy who has like, you know, a, his dead cat in the freezer and wants to bury it. And then the whole thing winds up being a journey through the desert with the cat in a cooler to try to b- bury the cat with these two guys just yelling at each other nonstop and, and getting in all of these horrible, contentious things. And at a certain point, Crispin Glover is like drinking the melted water out of the cooler that the dead cat is in. You know, it just it gets gross and weird. And there's no reason to watch this movie. I don't recommend this to anybody, but I just had to vent. I, I, it's been so many years, and I, I need the catharsis of being able to share this pain with you, Tim Cogshell, and all of our listeners. <laughs> you, uh, you know the thing, the thing, the thing. Uh, I like Howard Hessman, and I like Crispin uh, Glover. You know, even way yeah. back then, they were both you know sort of quirky. You know, uh, Crispin he, he did that wacky thing in in those Zemeckis films. You know. Uh, and uh, and Howard Hesman, of course, was Doctor Doctor Johnny, whatever the hell his name was on WK Fever, and in Cincinnati, you know. Oh, plus he, he that, that great sitcom from the late eighties, early nineties that he was in and with the head of the class. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, Howard Hesman. So you know, yeah. And but you know, yeah. that was a moment there in the early nineties when a lot of wacky people, people, uh, 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 Brad Pitt's. So the first big film, he, he made this film with, with Rick Schroeder, the sort of a straight ahead film uh, where he played Rick Schroeder's brother. Uh, uh, Rick was actually the star of that film called Across the Tracks. But he was in this film called Johnny Suede. And, you know, and, yep. and, he's, and Johnny Suede was sort of character, this all Elvis-like character with this pompadour. And, and there were these, all these little weird movies like that. Uh, uh, Motorama was another one of them. And they were just these sort of oh, like... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Alison Anders made one or two of them before she made, you know... Um, uh, yep. It's just, you know, there's just this moment where these little wacky sort of existential True. angst films uh, were sort of like True. popping up. And most of them were really obnoxious and pretentious and terrible. Uh, so, you know, what are you going to do? 
um, so, so at the end of the show, after I sign off with Tim, I'm going to wrap out with, uh, haven't done any anime in a while. So I'll, I'll spare Tim the ordeal of that. And I will, uh, roll through, I'll roll through some anime suggestions to round out the show. But until then, uh, Tim, what do we shift to next? We got some new movies. We got Criterion. We got, I was looking at, I see, I've seen, I've seen some of these new movies. Uh, yeah. yeah, I saw I saw that 400 bullets that Tom Patton film, which is you know meant to be this sort of like real gritty sort of uh, Afghanistan war movie. Um, uh, with these guys, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's it's a weird thing when you look at these sort of uh, these sort of films. Um, um, if you'll you'll recall, uh, of course, like you know about five years, uh, well, and frankly, not even after during the Vietnam War, uh, there were a few films uh, uh, that sort of came out about the war, you know. Uh, and then, of course, about five years after the war, we got that big run through the early 80s of all of these you know, yeah. uh, uh, Hotel uh, Hanoi and, uh, and obviously Platoon and and uh, and yeah. country and all of these. They, 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 they wind up doing it to death. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and I don't know, but, but, but these 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 last uh, you haven't I haven't re- I can't really think of a single really good Jarhead was a decent movie about the first. Iraq War, if you recall, Jarhead, yeah. um, um, and 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 I and I and I remember appreciating that Denzel Washington tank movie. I think it was called uh, what was that tank movie? The one where he was the tank commander out in the middle of, of, oh, of a thing. He had to yeah. investigate. He had to investigate the the helicopter crash. Meg Ryan's character's helicopter yeah, crash. Yeah, boy, um, what was that? It, it, I, I want to. It, it was not in country, but it was. No, that was that was Bruce Willis's one from. from, from yeah, so I, but you know that one. I appreciated Gosh, those I two. Do. After that, I, you know, they kind of go away from me. These last several films, uh, several years, uh, there have been several films uh, that try to speak that have tried to speak to you know either the Afghanistan war, or the, the continuation of the war in Iraq, and and just nothing, just nothing. I you know our, our friend Rod Lurie made one. Um, uh, but I don't know, man. I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm like obviously during World War II, there were all those movies, and those yeah. movies continue to resonate. But something about the current, um, you know, the wars about the current film, uh, uh, wars, films about the current wars, they just don't work uh, at all. I've never, I haven't seen one. Uh, I mean, I, I, they, correct they me if feel I'm wrong. Exploitive. Yeah, they no, seem like right. it. They, they're all full of politics. That's for sure. Uh, you know. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. I, I just never felt like, or, or, or it's not that there's not politics in, in a film like, say, Full Metal Jacket. There are politics in that film. Uh, you know, yeah. film. Yeah, there are politics in that film, but they they're just the politics of the day. They're not the politics of the filmmakers. Yeah. You know, they're just yeah. you know this this is what the politics were of 1970. You know, whatever the heck it was, and so, so the, those politics yeah. were in the film, but, but they're not the filmmakers' politics. All of these movies. You can see the politics of the filmmakers all over these movies. Yeah. And I think that that's an yeah. undermining kind of thing. Anyway, that's a long way. That's a lot of talking to, to, to point out how this movie. No, but it's a, I think it, I think it, uh, it underlines the point. Um, I also want to make mention new movie that uh, it's only on DVD. We don't have it on Blu-ray. Uh, still worth checking out. I wouldn't say, I think it's probably more of a, you know, a VOD if, if that's available, but uh, it is available on a DVD. If you feel you need to own it is the last Vermeer, which is based on a true forgery incident involving a Vermeer painting. Uh, Guy Pierce and Clay bang are a, the principal cast members. Guy Pierce playing a, uh, 
a, a rather fascinating and ex- eccentric character, kind of an art connoisseur who may there may be more than meets the eye with him. Uh, Guy Pierce chews the scenery a good bit here, but uh, it's still a really solid performance. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know that it's Guy Pierce, you're not probably not going to care. Uh, a little bit of a courtroom drama, but I think uh, you know pretty solid film for the most part. The Last Vermeer, worth checking out. Mm, yeah, um, I thought so too. Sean Patrick Flannelly is in this movie called uh, Born a Champion. Oh Sean Patrick Flannery, man, you, 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 you know, in the early 90s, uh, in the middle 90s, that guy was a movie star for a while there. Um, you know, just Dude, the me, Saints and all that stuff. Um, let uh, me tell you, yeah. when, when this arrived, when this arrived and, and I and I because I didn't see it, you know, I took the uh, I, I, I pull it out of the envelope and I look at it and I and I and I think it's an old Mickey Rourke movie. And I go. Damn, Dennis Quaid looks old in that old Mickey Rourke movie that I've never heard of. And then I realized, <laughs> holy cow, this is a new movie. And that's not Mickey Rourke. That's Sean Patrick Flannery. Yeah. So old Sean Patrick Flannery now looks like young Mickey Rourke. <laughs> Which is just yeah, so, 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 so uh, bizarre. It's about this guy. He's an American uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, fighter and uh, apparently the first American to get a, to get a black belt. No, part of that is apparently a true story, which is which is which is all fine. You know, there's some good fight scenes in this movie. You know, it's it's fairly it's fairly dramatic. You know, it has it has some beats. It's not it's not bad. And you know, and uh, Dennis Quaid can act. And actually, Sean Patrick Flannery can act. So, uh, you know, it's just it's it's not as bad as you might think. Costas Mandalore shows up in it too. So, you know, you're watching this movie and frankly, it's just like this 19, you know, 90s, middle 90s flashback to all these old, uh, these old want used to be movie star guys. It's kind of not that terribly bad. Well, this is what this is one of those grindstone films that we talk about a lot where they go and dig up some actors and throw some money at them and make a make a relatively solid movie. I mean, the grindstone stuff is not terrible. It's it's just very grindstone. Speaking of, by the way. Even though it's not a grindstone film, but it's an Emmett Furla film, which is effectively almost the same thing. Uh, this week on film, we're talking about Boss Level. I, I did Boss Frank. Level, a real fun film. Frank. Frank Griot. Frank Griot at 57, who has a better body than Jean-Claude Van Damme had at 27. It's unbelievable. <laughs> this would have been a Van Damme movie like 25 years ago, but it's not now. Now it's a now it's a Frank Griot movie, and it's it's great. It's I'll tell you this, and, and people can listen to Film Week this week. Here's my preview of my film week one liner. This is basically Groundhog Day crossed with John Wick. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. John Wick meets Groundhog Day <sighs> with, a, with a hell of a budget. Yeah, and you, it's funny how Frank. Frank was what was he like a UFC guy? What 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 he fought? Oh, I don't know. He fought. I don't something. know. He's he? one of those. He was he was one of those fighter guys. I can't remember. Oh, what it is. Man. And and he sort of like worked his way into the movies through that. He would be in those movies, you know. Uh, well, you know, playing playing the heavy or playing whatever, and 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 just so like slowly worked his way into legit movies where he had to do a little bit of acting, but kind of brought it. You know, he was in the gray uh, with Liam Neeson yeah. and all that kind of stuff. He was kind of solid in that. He was kind of solid in that real serious sort of dramatic. He's solid film. in this, man. Uh, and He's solid uh, in I, this. I, I good for good on him. Um, good I see. I see. I see a Dion Taylor film here. Fatal. Whenever I talk about a Dion Taylor film, I have to point out that Dion Taylor is the most prolific black filmmaker in the history of Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> is he really? Dion makes a movie every twenty minutes. <laughs> and, oh and, and 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 yeah, and in real movies with real people, this particular one, 
Um, um, Bruce Wank and Michael Ely. Michael Ely. Michael Ely's been in two or three of his films. Megan Goods in one or two of his films. If you go back to wow. oh, Meet the Blacks, he had Mike Epps in that film. And and there are all these uh, Mike Coulters in this one. So, you know, he makes these films. He, he gets these actors. Um, you know, he just does not miss. Uh, sometimes he releases two films in a year. Uh, and, you know, and, 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 you know, look, they're, they're these sort of like B-level films with fairly decent cast and releases. And, uh, and they usually draw a sort of, a sort of following, you know, because they're genre movies, almost all of them are genre films of, of one sort or another. This one is, this one is just sort of a reverse, uh, uh, what was the one with, um, Michael Douglas and, uh, Fatal, Fatal Attraction. Uh, he just leaves the word attraction <laughs> off. But that's all it really, really is. Well, let me say, he has, even his worst film is Head and Shoulders Better Than Ruben and Ed. So, <laughs> there you go. Uh, but there, there you, you go. go. So another, yeah, we got another Deion Taylor thriller. Uh, he's in, he gets in, he gets so, out. So, so he, here's, a, here's a silly one. Uh, uh, sky Sharks. Uh, <laughs> the sea is for fish. The sky is for sharks. So just so everybody understands, this is, this is from Cape Light. This is completely ridiculous. This makes no sense at all. This is clear. Like, you know, my, my friend David Latt is one of the founders of the, of the Asylum who makes all the, the Sharknado movies. Uh, I've known David for 30 some years. Used to, used to write for him in previous publication he had. In any case, um, Sharknado, first time funny mm. people who are saying like hey let's just riff on sharknado and and you know have like like zombie nazis and flying sharks and try to no just stop it yeah. just stop it with the sharks like honestly truly the idea of i like a like some weird like n- resurrected nazi experiment with flying sharks i like stop it just stop it. I can't even I can't even come up with like a one liner elevator pitch for something this stupid. Just stop it. Sky sky sharks. Come on, for love <sighs> sakes. You know, it. you know, look, it's not like when we were, you know, really young film critics, or maybe even before then, um, what's his name uh over there was was making all those toxic of toxic Avenger movies. Uh, Kaufman, Kaufman, Kaufman. Yeah, Lloyd, Uh, Lloyd Kaufman. Yeah, yeah, him and his brother. And, uh, you know, they made, I mean, these are, these are, these are not even Roger Corman films. These are, these are, you know, the Toxic Avenger films. I mean, you know, uh, and they were perfectly insane uh, movies. uh, And, you know, I don't know, whatever. It seems like there's always going to be some sort of a wacky genre like that. That Gerard Butler movie, Greenland. Yeah, which is actually a pretty damn good, you know, uh, genre flick. Uh, it's not bad, not right? bad at all. You know, it's it's intense. It's sort of paced quite nicely. To be honest with you, I rather preferred it to. Yeah, yeah. You look, there was a run of these movies. Uh, what 10, 15, 20 well, years cl- ago, and the and the Clooney film from uh, that was on Netflix. It oh, of course, of uh, uh, Sky, Sky uh, Midnight Sky. Yeah. Midnight Sky. Yeah. Uh, a little uh, bit of the same deal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, anyway, uh, comments coming, fragments of it are smashing around Earth, destroying cities and whatnot. Not Gerard Butler's estranged from his wife. He's got this family, and, you know, and there's a possible chance to get to someplace that might be safe. Although that part of the movie, I don't mind why would that place be safe? Um, um, uh, it, it, but nevertheless, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really just this sort of uh, thrilling uh, uh, movie that, that, uh, they all play it really straight and take it and take it really, really super serious, seriously. You know, it's no, um, what was that wacky one with Bruce Willis and, uh, and, uh, and Ben Affleck? Armageddon. Oh, Armageddon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's no Armageddon. It's not that. Um, um, it's, uh, so, you know, yeah, you thoroughly enjoyed no, this, it's, this movie. 
it it's Gerard Butler doing what he does well and not trying to do too much else. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, I, I should, uh, you know, I, I see him around town every once in a while. I should probably just pull him aside and go, Greenland, dude. Nice job. Yeah. Uh, and then he'll punch me. Um, so <laughs> no, and, no, what he'll do is buy you a drink. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> well, maybe. Um, Charlotte Vega and Matthew Modine in wrong turn. Ah, uh, yes. We, and then, and then here's the here's the funny tagline: "We still haven't learned." I love that. <gasps> uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's you know, it's the uh, it's the hills have eyes ish. Um, I guess we still haven't learned not to make remakes of the hills have eyes. Yeah. Um, but that's basically what it is: the hills have eyes. I don't know. You know, it, it's exactly what it is: uh, mountain dwellers and the Appalachians, and you know stereotypes and don't don't go near them mountains because there's crazy people in them <laughs> um whatever uh, but it's you know it's reasonably well done and if you're a horror fan who who doesn't mind derivative stuff i guess it's it's got a got a, a thrill or two that you'll probably appreciate uh, let's, let's see uh what else we got here uh horizon line did you see horizon line by I chance think i saw that one so um it, it's it's uh it's moderately okay. It's it's one of those you know it's a little bit I mean it's not a horror film. It's a it's more one of those survival type deals. Um and we get a few of these. I I uh you know where everything goes wrong and people have to have to su- somehow survive the 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 horrible horrible circumstances surrounding them. In this case it's a couple who are on board a little plane uh and they're you know going to a friend's island wedding and then the pilot has a heart attack and uh everything goes south from there. I mean I guess it's um let's put it this way. You see the filmmaking in a lot of cases in this thing. You're very aware. You're like, okay, that's tank work. Okay. That's a little bit of CGI, CGI. You know, you're very aware of how sort of constructed it is based on set pieces and so forth. But, um, you know, I mean, I guess it's serviceable. It's, it's tense. Uh, Alexander Draymond and Allison Williams are the actors. I'm not familiar with either of them, but it's, it's okay. All right. The, the very excellent Mr. Dundee. Let me see if I understand the storyline, right? Paul Hogan, the Australian yeah. actor, the Crocodile Dundee guy. I, I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to be able to make this sound good. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. And, 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 you know, he wants to retire. But explain this to me. Um, for one thing, dude, I didn't even know Paul, Paul Hogan lives in Brentwood. I had no idea. <laughs> You know, I didn't either. Uh, you know, I would have thought that Paul was down to say anyway. Uh, uh, the, the sort of crocodile Dundee guy uh, on the eve of being knighted is sort of desperate to restore his his, his sort of solid reputation thing. I don't know, yeah. man. Uh, it's so what? Because even the even the poster is playing on the old crocodile Dundee poster. You know, when he was pushing the yeah the the, the, the so you know what, what the hell is going on in this film? What is Paul doing? I don't know. I don't know. Here, let, let me preface this by saying this is also a grindstone film. Okay. So you know how we often say there are, there are two kinds of grindstone movies, one in which aging actors come in and take one last stab at being action stars, and then movies with talking animals. <laughs> uh, this is basically a movie about talking animals. The difference being that Paul Hogan is the talking animal. Uh, but it's it still goes in that. it's It's just... This movie makes no sense. It's Paul Hogan playing himself, trying to to deal with some late life, you know, uh, crises centering around his knighthood. And it's just 
it's just ridiculous. It really it, it only exists for a handful of cameos, which include Olivia Newton John for some charitable reason. Like, I think she um, lives in Malibu. <laughs> well, I, it, maybe maybe she still lives here. I don't know. I mean, she used to be a neighbor. I used to see her drive drive around all the time when I was you know Ugh. fifteen. I was very excited. Uh, but uh, Chevy Chase shows up for some reason, and John Cleese is in here for some reason. I don't know why this movie even exists. It's very strange. <gasps> uh, and our last new movie is Fear of Rain with Catherine Heigl. I'm so, so sorry. I just don't know why Katherine Heigl can't put it together and, and do something decent again. Man, um, that chick really burned it out. Boy. Uh, I mean, you know, she gosh. really burned it uh, you know, from the first Under Siege movie. And a and, uh, good run on that, uh, that, what was that, late 90s sort of um, uh, science fiction TV show, Roswell. I think she was in Roswell. Yeah. And then she did all of these just really terrible movies uh, back to back to back to back. Well, she's playing moms now. So basically the idea here is Catherine Heigl and Harry Connick Jr. are parents to a daughter who is having early onset schizophrenia. Mm. And uh, it, 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 that should be sort of a setup that gets you, that, that earns you some kind of, you know, a very serious drama. Um, but it, it winds up not being so. It winds up kind of going into stupid thriller territory and, and doesn't really... It, it 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 winds up not making a whole lot of sense, and the sad thing is, you know, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense because of the way it's directed. Like you watch this thing, and you're like, "I know where this movie is going," and I don't like it, mm. and I really, really don't like it, and yet I know it's going to go there. And then, like a half an hour later, you're like, "Oh, it's so going there." Right. And on then about the one hour mark, you go, "Oh, why did you go there?" <laughs> it's just one of those movies. Weekly. This is this is what this is what our life is like, isn't it, Tim? It is. It, it is. It actually, actually is. Um, we've got a few minutes left. Did you want to hit? Well, let, let me let let's let's knock out some of the 4K because I think there's some important 4K stuff here. Okay. okay. Uh, the the not so important 4K is the Crudes, the New Age. Um, which if you like the first Crudes, you'll love it. If you didn't, uh, there's no no point in this. I mean, it's 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 the Crudes. It is what it is. I, I, it's you know, it got an Oscar nomination because there's no other animation that necessarily goes along with it. Mm. The the two that we should talk about is uh, number one, Elysium. Oh yeah, because Neil Blomkamp, who this was his uh, un- overpriced follow up to uh, um, oh district to, dis- uh, district, uh, district nine. Yeah, he's he's now writing District Ten. So what do we think about that? I didn't like Elysium, but I love District Nine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Elysium uh, was a little too. Uh, I, I had a couple of you know uh, Matt. Uh, what's his name? Matthew. Uh, what's his Matt name? Damon. Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Matt Damon. That movie. Yeah. Uh, so yes, yeah, same there. So I guess you know what that didn't work. Go back to the well and, and try it again. Well, it's it's a gorgeous 4K. It has a uh, movies anywhere digital uh, copy included in it. Tons of extras on this thing. A lot of which you've probably already seen, but there's a lot of fun stuff in 4K as well. Extras in 4K, so it's. I mean, it. You know, I mean, it's a beautiful movie. If you if you like it, you're probably going to want to get the the 4K and upgrade to it. It really does show off, you know, audio and picture really nicely. But here's the other one I want to talk about: uh, Spike Lee's "Do the Right Thing" oh, on, on 4K UHD. Now, the emails that I have gotten from some people are. Damn it. I already got the criterion of this, but it's a Blu-ray. So do I get rid of my criterion Blu-ray and pick up the universal 4K? And my answer is no, Mm. because the criterion Blu-ray actually looks better Mm. than the universal 4K. It's a better transfer. Mm, The the colors are better. It's not as high a resolution. I admit that. 
But um, I think you probably want them both is what I would say. Mm. I hate to tell people, you know, double dip, but I do think you want them both. Also, there are different special features on them. Uh, there are four hours of special features on this thing, much of which is not on the, the Criterion. So uh, I would say if you are a fan of Do the Right Thing, and you should be, um, you're going to want them both. Yep. Yep. I think you want them both. Yep. Got to um, completely. It's so uh, funny. I've been watching do the, do the right thing. <clears throat> and the, my blue, my Blu-ray, <clears throat> because I, you know, I have my had to calibrate because I've been doing color correction, my little movie color. Yeah. Correction, you know, and they're, they're both still like set on one day as the hottest day of the year and everything. I've, I'm, I've been trying to get a sense for, for the way. I think oh, it's, yeah. it's the East coast and everything in New York for the ways, but because it's it, 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 in um, the Blu-ray is pretty saturated. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Very. Yeah, you know, when, it's, it's a funny thing though because you know, obviously you know, went to see that film in 1980 in you know, the theater, you know, 35 millimeter print projected, obviously, and I just yeah. don't remember it being it ever being. That's the only time I ever saw it projected. It was the first time I saw it. Then you know, uh, and I've seen it a thousand times since in all all kinds of situations. The only time I ever saw it projected from film was then, and I don't remember it to being that saturated. I remember, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's all kinds of dashikis and cool and, and red. There's that red wall. Yeah. Remember there in front of the red wall? Uh, the oh, it's so face. beautiful. It's just all, all that kind of stuff. But I'm like, wow, this is really so. Anyway, it's um, um, I'm I'm taking some cues from that. Is what I'm doing. Interesting. Stuff. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Good. Good thing. Uh, we we do, by the way, then also have a few criterions. Uh, smooth talk which I never would have expected to, to be a criterion, to be honest. This is from uh, 1985. And, um, you know, young, young Laura Dern, uh, yeah. this was kind of the film that, that made her. I mean, Tim, do you remember seeing this when it came out? I, well, yeah, I saw it. I'll see it, it later. Was, it, was, it was before I got here. Uh, so I didn't review yeah. it. It was before I, uh, I was writing. Uh, but I do remember it, uh, actually seeing it. Yeah. I, 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 I have a vague recollection of seeing this long afterwards because i was in i was in france when this came out so i would have seen this probably early 90s on i want to say on vhs or something and i can't remember exactly how but i remember thinking oh that's not that great of a film but i guess it was a real seminal film in 85 just in terms of you know depicting that generation and uh you know sexuality and 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 lost innocence and all of that kind of stuff joyce chopra didn't really ever go anywhere as a filmmaker no. but there are a lot of really interesting uh, extras on here that will that sort of increase my appreciation for what it represented at the time. Uh, new new conversation between Chopra and uh, Treat Williams and Mary Kay Place, mm. uh, which is very very interesting. So smooth talk, quite a quite an interesting and unexpected Criterion release. And then the last two. So if anybody has seen the White Tiger mm. on uh, on Netflix, um, directed by uh, Raman Barani who previously did uh, 99 Homes, mm -hmm. which is outstanding. So Raman Barani is a really interesting guy. He's an American-born son of uh, Iranian immigrants and, and brings this amazing sort of cultural background to his, uh, to his filmmaking. And the two films that really kind of made him were Man Push Cart and Chop Shop. Mm -hmm. And I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to him at the time. This is the uh, kind of the mid-2000s. Man Push Cart was 2005, Chop Shop 2007. But a lot of other people were really paying attention to him and revisiting these movies after seeing 99 Homes and then obviously the, the White Tiger on Netflix. Um, man, I, you know, I, I, even when he's not quite on, I find Barani to be a really interesting, he makes really super interesting choices because he comes at everything sideways. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering 
if maybe it's because he is he does you know he is kind of from a a, a bicultural background you know immigrant parents growing up here he kind of comes at everything with a with a perspective that i would not expect and well um, and 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 particularly particularly that, that movie chop shop he, he does that, uh he does that sort of neo-realist thing you know you, you that kid that's in that movie yeah. that's a kid it's in the movie, yeah. the guy is, but that's again, you know, these are well, a lot of quote unquote non actors. They're all acting very well, but they're not actors per se. They kind of like are who yeah. they are. You know, the kid who's running around this six is, is his sister, is his sister. And so he's kind of doing that neo realist thing. You know, by the time you get to 99 Homes, you know, Andrew Garfield and all of that kind of stuff. But, but, um, uh, yeah, the, uh, Chop Shop and Man Push Card, again, same sort of thing. Uh, the, the what you're watching is is something analogous to the reality of the moment um, uh, and, and the people yeah. living those lives in those places at that time doing those things, but for a, a certain sort of narrative uh, superimposed o- over the top of it uh, is what he's doing. I really love that stuff. Yeah. Well, we are we're at the end of uh, the regular period. I want to do a couple of giveaways here. Uh, we've got some some interesting uh, Paramount releases that are all part of the uh, the new Paramount Presents line of classic titles. Um, uh, for example, one of the new titles is Elizabeth Town, which I don't want to uh, give too much attention to because Cameron Crowe just completely bonked it in this thing. It's really not a good, it, it's not a good, it's just not a good movie. It's just not a good movie. It's, it's, it's like, uh, it's just not good. Cameron like, lost it after almost famous, really. That was, I that know was it's really, of, it's really it. sad, but this is, this is like, uh, what was the movie with the, what's his name? Zach from scrubs that he was in. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, 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 the girl, yeah, I know. What uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well anyway, it's 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 basically that except not done very well. Um, but here's what we do have: uh, we have the court jester and love story. Uh, love story having its wonderful anniversary celebration. Love story, just a, a seminal film. Mm. Uh, Ally McGraw and Ryan O'Neill got stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame the other day, which made everyone go, "They didn't have them already." Yeah. And it's kind of true. It's like, well, are you kidding me? Why didn't they have them back in 1970 when the movie came out? That's an amazing thing. Love Story was a a revolution at the time. If there had been no Love Story, there might not have been a Godfather because Love Story was so successful. It kept Robin. It, it saved Robert Evans' job, and he was able to then get behind the Godfather uh, a couple of years later. Mm. So um, Arthur Hiller never made a better movie. It's got a TCM introduction by Ben Mankiewicz, and we are giving away. Two copies of Love Story. We are get also giving away two copies of 1956's Danny K. Classic, The Court Jester, uh-huh. uh, shot shot in Vista Vision here on Blu-ray. An absolutely fantastic transfer. It is so bright and so funny. Angela Lansbury is so beautiful in this thing. It just it kills me. Uh, this is a really wonderful movie. It's so so funny. Uh, Glennis Johns is in this as well, who would later on be in uh, uh, Mary Poppins. I mean, it's a it's a funny, wonderful, fantastic, classic Danny Kay movie. Uh, you, you will not regret it. We're giving away two copies of each of those. Send us emails to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. Make sure they get to, with, to us by March 8th. Put um, Jester in the subject line if you want to be in the running for uh, the court Jester. And put Love, just L-O-V-E, in the subject line if you want to be in the running for a love story. And put your name and address in the body of the email. And on the 8th, we will pick two very happy winners for each one and uh, send you these Blu-rays. 
with that, Tim, uh, I've got film week this week as well, so I'm up to my neck. What, uh, what else do you have? <laughs> uh, doing, 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 a little, doing a little editing, a little, little color correcting. Um, um, you, there's an, uh, a series of BuzzMeter articles I've been contributing to along with uh, uh, Claudio Puig, our other uh, film week critic uh, on the Oscars coming up. You know, So I think there's one more of those that will be popping up. People go roaming around. You search my name in the LA Times, they'll find that. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, just seeing how the, the rest of the sort of um, uh, award season is going to play out. I think the Independent Spirit Awards, which are actually my favorite award show, you know, our our own, not yep. standard, the Independent Spirit Awards have always been just this wonderful show. They used to have it down on the beach uh, in Santa Monica years ago. I think they're having it on the beach again. And it's always the day before the Oscars. Uh, it, they used to broadcast it on IFC or something like that. I doubt that they even have a broadcast uh, situation, but, but if you if you go to to um, I don't know whatever um, film independent or independent spirit awards, you can probably watch a zoom over or something. Um, the, the independent spirit awards. So we'll see how they do that one, and, uh, and that'll be that'll be a wrap for this for this season. All right. Well, I'm uh, once I let you go here, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little tag with uh, with a few anime recommendations for the week, and then uh, we will see everybody in a couple of weeks, and uh, I think we'll probably come back after Oscar nominations. And uh, and have some some big thoughts at, about at that time. So, with that yeah, here yeah. here now we're gonna dovetail into anime. All right, so we're now gonna do a little anime segment for the show. Just we've got a lot of great anime that we haven't covered in the past, and um, you know it's been a little while. So I want to just jump into some of this stuff and uh, and make sure it's on the the radar of anime fans. First up, Ongaku Our Sound by uh, Kenji Iwaisawa, who pretty much was a, a one-man wrecking crew on this thing. Uh, this is a really novel and new kind of anime. Um, doesn't look a whole lot like regular anime. Probably has a little bit more of a Beavis and Butthead look to it, to be honest, or King of the Hill has that um, that Mike Judge simplicity. But um, it, it's kind of a coming-of-age thing about these uh, you know, three ne'er-do-well high school kids and uh, who form a band um it's uh but it trans it translates well it's got some great humor in it also from shout factory we have and i believe this played on netflix we have the very very compelling uh be the beginning season one which is kind of a serial killer noir tale not for kids necessarily incredible artwork it takes place in a city state an imaginary city state where there are these horrible horrible murders and the whole thing is sort of procedural and trying to to catch the uh, catch the the criminal responsible, uh, really really good. Comes with a, a lot of great extras on here, uh, you know, art cards and a poster and the pilot film, and then an interview with the director. That's that's pretty terrific. Uh, we also have from uh, still from uh, well, this is this is actually from Nozomi. This is from um, uh, Right Stuff Video, Right Stuff is Ah My Buddha, two exclamation points. The punctuation always counts in anime titles, as we will get to in just a moment with a, another pair of films. Uh, this is about a, about a, about a guy who is um, super, super hormonal. This is, I guess, probably for older teens, makes more sense. Um, and when his uh, hormones rage, he kind of turns into a superhero, like a Buddhist monk superhero. It's a little bit weird, but, um, you know, then it, then it gets into kind of some weird family comedy and, uh, you know, it's, it's it, the, 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 the humor is very specific. 
you probably know this kind of humor in anime. It, it's sometimes inappropriate, sometimes completely unexpected. But um, this is this belongs to a, a very particular genre. Ah, my Buddha, B U D D H A, two exclamation points. Uh, Bartender on its 15th anniversary is getting kind of a cool little re-release. I'm not particularly a fan of this. Don't really understand it. Didn't spend a lot of time watching uh, these episodes. Nice animation, but it's, you know, kind of a, kind of a hipster narrative and hipster characters. And I don't really get the whole point of it, but uh, nonetheless, it's a nice set. Uh, It comes with uh, cocktail cards and drink coasters. And uh, that is the 15th anniversary collector's edition of bartender. Uh, not specifically Japanese anime, but they're definitely very much inspired by it, is Jang Ziya, The Ultimate Warrior, which is the second in a series. The first was Nezha, uh, N-E-Z-H-A, which are all part of the Fengshen Cinematic Universe. These are uh, mainland Chinese th- uh, CG animated epics that are very much inspired by anime, as most uh, Asian animation tends to be, all the way from India to um, Taiwan to China to Korea. It, they all sort of take their cues from, from Japan because that's what's popular. Uh, in any case, the, uh, the story here is about a sort of a powerful mythical general who has to accomplish a quest that will earn him his, his destined uh, stature among the gods. And there is a complication in that quest and that creates a moral dilemma. It's very interesting, quite well written. And given the, uh, the, 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 the ebb and flow of the story. I'm kind of surprised politically that it came out of uh, the current Chinese uh, culture. So that's, that's quite cool. Uh, Funimation has a few recent titles from the end of last year that are also worth, uh, worth mentioning. Uh, I'm going to go through the, uh, the main ones. They're all sort of team oriented and uh, stand my heroes piece of truth. This is the complete series. This is a series I had never heard of before, and I thought I was connected enough to most of the anime world to, to have heard of this before. Um, this is a, um, a little bit like Marvel's Shield. This is about a group called Stand, and uh, they have to, they are a little bit like Shield or like Sword, if you've been watching uh, the, uh, the recent uh, Disney Plus show, WandaVision. Uh, sword and shield are like complementary organizations and here it's stand and it's uh it you know these are this is kind of a crime fighting operation it's got you know bureaucrats and detectives and operatives and agents and um they're trying to sort of get to the root of a a drug operation um it's very very well written it's probably a, a little bit beyond children it's more kind of mid to late teens but it's it's quite good uh, season one, part two of Fairy Gone is now out. That's uh, got some some similar qualities to it. Uh, the uh, this is after in the aftermath of a, a terrible war. The um, you you now have this sort of pseudo soldier, pseudo army operation, whose job is to uh, try and keep the peace. And uh, what makes them unique is that they are fairy soldiers. These are the fairy soldiers of. Uh, of Dorothea. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a fun idea. If you haven't seen the first part of the uh, first season, it will make not a lot of sense to you. So you should definitely get that only if you're, you're caught up completely on the, uh, on, on the saga. The same thing goes for radiant, which is now in season two, part one. If you, 
if you have not watched season one, you're going to be completely caught off guard. And this is a, a more mythical journey stuff, more of that Joseph Campbell stuff. It's uh, it's had a really interesting legacy. It started as a manfra, which is like French manga. Then it became Japanese manga, and then it became an anime season, and they added the second season. And so this is the beginning of the second season. Um, a little bit hard to describe exactly what's going on. It's kind of in a, a mythical quasi-future where uh, monsters – rain from the sky and and turn people into sorcerers or or destroy anything else and about this uh, ordained hero who has to bring balance and peace back to the uh back to the world um lots of alternating forces conflicting forces uh that he has to navigate it's a, it's a, it's a good hero's journey thing and it has a lot of uh, a lot of nice nuance to it uh, and then we have uh, Kono Oto Tomare exclamation point sounds of life. Uh, this is season two again, like with everything else we've been talking about. If you're not completely immersed in the uh, the mythology of it, it will not make a whole lot of sense to you. In Japan, this is a giant thing. The there are millions and millions of copies were sold of the uh, the original manga. So. Uh, this series is is a big deal. If you are not familiar with the manga or season one, you might want to catch up especially if you are a fan of uh, the traditional Japanese instrument, the Koto. This is about a club of them and how they are trying to master it to become, uh, you know, national champions. Um, not, not a lot else going on here. It's, it's coming of age stuff. It's, uh, you know, school stuff, teen stuff. Very, very uh, much a part of Japanese culture, but um, it, it translates pretty well I, I think you know everybody will be able to sort of relate to what these kids are doing and, and what's going on uh and it's got a lot of fun music and and pretty well written comes with the uh, art cards also on a blu-ray and digital set from funimation is uh, part two of ensemble stars exclamation point um, and this is a little bit in keeping with the same vein, a little, except a little bit more, uh, rock and roll. This is about the Yumenosaki Private Academy, where they train male pop stars to become parts of boy bands and so forth. And, uh, they are now going to go toe to toe with, uh, a rival school. This is, uh, probably, I mean, the, you'll, you you wouldn't appreciate the characters if you haven't seen season one, but, uh, or, or part one, but you know, there's, it's not that deep, so it's probably just as well. And then kind of in the same vein is, uh, the afterschool dice club. This is an all girls, more, more schoolyard stuff. This is, uh, an all girls club. This is all about the, uh, the Euro games. And uh, if you don't know what that is, then you're probably not alone. Cause I didn't either. I want to say in some ways, this reminds me of square pegs. Uh, you know, these, these Japanese schoolgirls and their, their board club and, uh, all trying to fit in and, and, uh, be the popular girls. They have all kinds of, you know, the usual, usual schoolyard politics that goes on in middle school and high school. Um, but it's, it's cute and it's fun and it's, uh, not overly demanding. And, uh, you know, the idea of a board game club probably, probably has a lot of currency in, uh, in other cultures as well. Uh, I want to move now to just a handful of Sente titles from Section 23. A lot of stuff from the Sente library is coming out. Um, I've got them in three different groups here. 
the first one, these are, these are, uh, this is anime that's sort of, of, of the, the heroic team variety. Let me go through these fairly quickly. Uh, the first one is Majestic Prince Genetic Awakening. This is the movie collection. This belongs to the, uh, the mecha subgenre of anime. This is also based on a manga. This is episode 25 of the series, pl- series plus the theatrical movie. Uh, it takes place in the future. Uh, the earth is under attack and there's a, you know, our only defense are these genetically enhanced kids. It's fun fantasy fulfillment, pretty decent Mecca. Then we have, uh, part one episodes one through 12 of, uh, seven seeds. This is kind of similar in some respects. The idea is that, uh, it's, you know, the earth has put seven, uh, sort of arcs called seeds, uh, seven different groups of people uh, into cryogenic freeze. They come out in a future post-apocalyptic environment when the earth has completely changed and they have to now sort of survive in that, uh, in those environments. Um, uh, really, really cool animation, some pretty smart writing and uh, it'll be interesting to see where this one goes. This is part one, also based on a manga, um, seven seeds. Next up is the complete collection of Sente's Punchline. These, again, are all on Blu-ray. And uh, there's a really weird joke that goes with this that I'm not going to say on the show. But it's basically about a guy who had uh, kind of like like a weird Japanese comedic version of Three's Company. Or you might call it Five's Company uh, with a ghost twist. A guy lives with four girls. He dies. His spirit becomes guardian of the girls. Um, but he, uh, he, he could bring on Armageddon if some really ridiculous thing happens. And, uh, it, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but if you know Japanese anime comedy, you can probably imagine given the setup, uh, Blade of the Immortal is just priceless. And this is the complete collection of, uh, Blade of the Immortal, which I think is one of the most stunning anime of like the last 25 years without any question. Uh, I, I wish the, this was a little bit fancier of a set, but uh, it's, it's fine as it is. It's better to have it than to not. Uh, most people are probably familiar with the Takashi Miike live action film, which is, it's, is, is a whole different kind of awesome. Uh, but the anime really does stand right alongside it as well. Uh, again, based on a manga, this is 24 episodes on three discs, the story of the samurai Manji and everything that crosses his path and all of his fights. It's just absolutely stunning stuff. It really is. This is just some of the, some of the best anime that you will, you will, you will ever see. It really, really is magnificent beautiful feudal work um something i'd never heard of before this is seasons one and two of ascendance of a bookworm uh the subtitle is i'll do anything to become a librarian exclamation point there's that exclamation point again uh, ascendance of a bookworm i'll do anything to become a librarian this has been v- available in the u.s on crunchyroll if you uh, if any of you are viewers of crunchyroll and the story here is a little bit weird, um, and I'm not sure even after watching uh, most of it that I it makes a lot of sense to me. But it's a it seems to be about a librarian who is reincarnated as a little girl in a future where books are taboo, or at least very scarce. And uh, I guess on a certain level, this is designed to teach children an appreciation for reading. But I would say maybe there are easier ways to tell that story. 
Uh, then we have another collection of Sente titles here, which are uh, sort of not really categorizable, but they're they're all worth noting. The first one is uh, Twittering Birds Never Fly, The Clouds Gather. Um, this is a feature film based on, on, on a manga that is mostly about the politics of, of y- the Yakuza. I didn't find it all that interesting. I think maybe you have to be familiar with the manga. I didn't find the animation itself that compelling. Um, but uh, apparently it is hugely popular with people who love the manga. So there is that. Uh, a Jin Demi-Human, the OAD collection. This is uh, this also seems to have a pretty pretty strong following. Yeah, the idea here, a, a, a jinn, A-J-I-N, are, uh, are a breed of very dangerous kind of uh, superhumans. They're, they're, they're a little bit like uh, Wolverine or Luke Cage. They, you can't kill them. They, they heal instantly. They have uh, regenerative powers that humans do not. And a little bit like Blade, there is one who says um, – you know, I will help you fight against those who are like me. And that's sort of the uh, the conflict that goes on here. It's, uh, you know, a little bit of a Superman Lex Luthor thing borrowed as well. Uh, speaking of which, Lock the Superman. That's L-O-C-K-E. Lock the Superman. This is something of a famous anime from 1984 that uh, is pretty simple stuff. It's uh, it's almost Power Rangers simple. It tells the story of uh, a super powerful Superman being who is called upon to help save humanity when this evil, evil female villain threatens to destroy everything. And that's pretty much it. It's it's really simple. But um, you'd, you'd probably want to take a look at this just to see where anime has come over the past 40-some years. Um, 1984 anime was pretty rudimentary and not that far beyond even Astro Boy or uh, or Speed Racer. Uh, 24 episodes on three discs of Ahiru no Sora, Collection 1, uh, Episodes 1 to 24. This is a basketball series, and uh, basketball is bigger in Japan than you might imagine. I know everybody thinks that uh, Japan is primarily baseball territory as far as more westernized sports. It's certainly soccer territory, but there are huge basketball fans there. And uh, the lead character here is Sora Kurumatani, who is just not built to be a great basketball player. But with a whole lot of pluck and luck, uh, the world of basketball will become both a, an opportunity and um, a life-teaching moment. The last set of titles I'm going to roll through here are, are all very feminist-themed. These are, these are you know amazing women and teams of women, and uh, that has become a, an incredibly popular uh, sub-genre or sub-world of anime. The first one is Negima! Exclamation point, and Negima! exclamation point question mark complete collection of both of them three discs 26 episodes uh pretty fun actually you know this is um this is this is hugely hugely popular um in japan and uh hugely popular outside of japan uh the central character here is actually male kind of like if harry potter were a were a little bit grown up and were teaching at at a girl's school but it's the you know the idea of this this powerful magician teacher and then the the female students that really uh, gives it all of its uh, 
all of its interesting little ins and outs. Uh, the, uh, and you know, it's basically all about the Mahora Academy where he, uh, where he teaches, you know, these, these students, um, all these amazing teenage girls. And, uh, it gets a little bit, uh, a little bit sketchy, you know, when it gets into the girls wanting to, um, having crushes on, on him, but, uh, it's, it's, it's still actually quite a, it's quite a great anime story. How, how Negi mod, you know, became so popular. Um, Morabito, Guardian of the Spirit, the complete collection, also from Sente, as all of these are. This is based on the first book of the very famous manga series, which is, uh, you know, basically, this is about 10 some odd years old, takes place in in this sort of mythical uh, pan-Asian world, which is beautifully, beautifully rendered and and quite nicely written, too. Nothing uh, out of the ordinary here, but this uh, this includes 26 episodes on four discs. Very, very nice transfers. Really, really quite sharp on Blu-ray. Some really great sort of action sequences here as well. Uh, the politics of it takes a little bit uh, getting used to. It's very Lord of the Ringsy. A lot of characters and a lot of ins and outs, but uh, otherwise quite fine. Uh, Granbelm, the two princeps, is actually a whole lot of fun and some really, really great animation here. So I'm not quite sure uh, how much of this actually, this mythology actually uh, makes sense. But the idea is that in the future, all the, the the world went through this giant war between wizards and witches and all the magic has now been bottled up inside some, some kind of a, you know, like a, like a Marvel like uh, gizmo of some, some kind. And um, you have these now, the only people who can uh, unlock the magic are these girls who have this competition where they're piloting these giant robots. So there's a little bit of mecha, a little bit of fantasy, a lot of different uh, anime genres that are all kind of folded into this. Um, But uh, it's very compelling characters, some really, really cool uh, uh, art design and the whole thing. And, uh, you can, you know, it's not, it's not overly immersed in this really, really didactic mythology that you can't sort of pick up on what's going on. The rules again are a little sketchy. It's not quite clear what is and isn't possible in the world. They kind of do tend to make it up as they go along a few places, but, um, Granbelm, the two princeps is, uh, is a lot of fun. And that also was aired on Crunchyroll here. Apparently I don't watch Crunchyroll, but so it says. Uh, now we have also to love Rue motto, the complete collection. That's motto to love Rue, the complete collection. This is an English dubbed edition, two discs, 12 episodes. I've talked about this before. Uh, it's just wacky stuff. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a guy and an alien princess and, um, weird high school antics. It's a little bit of, you know, Romeo and Juliet, a little bit of Lilo and Stitch. It's, um, yeah, a little, little bit too risque, uh, not for kids, definitely for the um, definitely for an older set. Um, only for people who know what it is and uh, know what they're getting into. The uh, another one of my favorite anime titles, a complete collection of when supernatural battles became commonplace, which is n- not at all what it sounds like. Uh, this is the uh, this is about the Senko High School Literature Club. And the members all have superpowers, so they can do all kinds of weird things, like one can create lava, and another one can manipulate matter, and sometimes it doesn't feel, seem like the rules really, really make a whole lot of sense. But, uh, you know, it's cute. It's another spin on the uh, Japanese school politics thing. Um, 
Complete collection of Assassin's Pride has a lot going for it as well. It takes place in a uh, post-apocalyptic world where the Earth is barely clinging to survival and human beings have to fight uh, creatures known as lycanthropes. And uh, one girl is, is seeking to develop the, the powers to basically be the mythical savior or savioress. Um, all while there is an assassin who's chasing her down. It's a lot more to the mythology, but that's basically the, the, the nutshell of it. It's fun. Some, some good stuff. Uh, Chidori RSC. This belongs to the, uh, sports club, uh, high school sports club, uh, sub genre of, uh, manga and, um, and anime. The original manga is uh, called Rifle is Beautiful. And uh, this is just basically about a girl who restarts her high school shooting club and tries to build it into a, you know, a great big elaborate competition. Girls with rifles, high school girls with rifles. If that's your thing, you're going to absolutely love this and go nuts for it. Uh, ZX Code Reunion, the complete collection. This is based on a card game and uh, the uh, it, it, it it's it's kind of you know risque artwork, but it's a it's a pretty smart story um, about these girls who have to you know there's 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 an interdimensional breakdown right, and these uh, these creatures from other dimensions are all sort of descending on our reality and our earth, and these girls have to train to be able to fight them. Uh, again, more moving parts to this, and it gets a little uh, a little into the school thing too. You know, they, there's, they have to train in their Academy, a little bit of a Harry Potter thing, but um, you know, the characters are fun. The, the artwork is, is sharp. And uh, it, again, the mythology is not too complicated to get a handle on. Uh, only got a few left here. Uh, we've got, let me do this one next. Bang dream film live. This is the uh, the feature film dealing with the the Bang Dream Pop Girls, the, uh, the 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 pop band that was so popular for three straight seasons, three straight anime seasons. Bang Dream Film Live. Um, no reason to watch this unless you just cannot get enough of it, and you've watched all three seasons of the anime series, and you just gotta have more. Uh, let's see the next one. This is kind of a weird blending of anime and Nordic mythology, but it's basically about a uh, kid who uh, who doesn't think much of himself and who is given the the burden, the calling, the mission from Odin to work with the Valkyries and save the Earth. And so, nine Valkyries. Um, it's uh, you know a tad risque, but the Valkyries are awesome and a whole lot of fun. And then the very, very last one here is Killing Bites, the complete collection, which is uh, probably not for all tastes, but I think it's I think it's pretty cool. It's a, you know, I think some of the, uh, it's got some inappropriate comedy in it that won't translate very well, but uh, I think it's pretty cool. Which is all about these, uh, these battles. Killing Bites, the complete collection from Sente. Last one we're talking about. Uh, these battles between... Um, kind of human-animal hybrids in, uh, which is basically it. Like, you know, they, they, they have human human claws and fangs and whatnot, or, or animal claws and fangs, and, you know. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it gets a little gruesome. It's not, 
not always tasteful, but uh, it's got some really, really great stuff in it. Some of the animation, some of the action stuff is, is very, very well done and particularly well edited, I would say. Um, so, uh, not for all tastes, but if that kind of twisted concept uh, sounds like your kind of thing, I would say go for it. And uh, that's on Blu-ray, as they all are from the Sente Library. With that, we're done this week. Uh, we'll be back in uh, probably two, maybe two and a half weeks. I think we're going to hold off until after the Oscar nominations, and uh, we will be back then. And uh, we will see what uh, this very unusual year will yield as far as the Academy Awards and whether or not this horrible slide uh, of Academy Awards ratings uh, will be able to rebound in a pandemic year or whether it will, like the Golden Globes, hit the basement again. We'll see you next time. Thank you.